Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 93 of the Becoming Human podcast. In this episode, I sit down with Dave Darce Porter. David Porter is a Pedro Sauer black belt in jiu-jitsu. He's been training in jiu-jitsu for 14 years. Man, that's a long time to spend committing to refining a skill. The discipline and the highs and lows that you'd have to experience through such a pursuit. It's tremendous. And I'm only like two and a half years in. But it's not like the number that's important. It's spending so much time pursuing learning. In this episode, David and I discuss what it's like to commit a large amount of your life to refine a skill, effective learning strategies, how to organize your training, psychological and cultural effects from jiu-jitsu, and more. You can check out David on Instagram, at Dave Darce, and drop in for some classes with Dave Darce and Jeff Shaw at Bellingham BJJ. You can find the links to all of that in the show notes. And if you'd like to support the show, head over to becominghumanpodcast.com. Share it with a friend and leave a comment. I promise we got lots of viruses. We'll infect your shit. Is that even a thing anymore? Like, I have some malware, like anti malware um, programs, but it's not like when I was a teenager. Man, I used to bog down my mom's computer. <laughs> she always thought that they would slow down because they were too old. <laughs> she still won't believe me when I tell her otherwise. All right, without any further ado, here's Dave Dars Porter. <laughs> Hey, everybody. This episode features my pal, David Porter. David, what brought you into jiu-jitsu? That's a great question. Uh, well, first off, thanks for having me on the show. I got to mm-hmm. say, it's uh, it's really good anytime I get to chat about my passion. But jiu-jitsu wasn't my primary goal when I got into martial arts. I did like a lot of kids in the 80s, and I got into karate. Um, karate turned to Kung Fu, Kung Fu turned to wrestling in high school before too long. You know, I'm doing, um, I'm doing a bunch of different things. I was, uh, doing kickboxing and Muay Thai, um, went professional in that and started doing the punchy kicky for a while. Was that like a a career choice for you or were you just, I like this and I'm kind of good at it. Yeah. I just liked it. Um, I remember being in college and I would do like underground fights i would take like a sanction bout every so often um i traveled and did it overseas it was great all while i was in school and then um when i got out i just started doing it more and more and uh around 2003 i made the jump into mixed martial arts only having like a a decent amount of striking background and my ground game consists entirely of wrestling. Mm-hmm. So I wrestled in high school and wrestled a little in college. And I was like, all right, cool. I know what to do on the ground. Clearly, <laughs> it's I'm just going to wrestle. <laughs> now, remember, in that era, that was OK, mm-hmm. because prior to the Ultimate Fighter reality show in 2005, the silver age of MMA and the UFC was dominated by what we call sprawl and brawlers. Right. So when you think of like Chuck Liddell and Tito Ortiz in their heyday, 
that's what it was. It was guys who knew how to stand up and box or kickbox, mm -hmm. and then they could stuff a takedown because the jujitsu guys in that era were really good if they can get you into a dominant position, but they weren't going to out strike you standing up. So if you could keep the fight standing, you're going to beat those guys. Um, so for me, I thought I was going to beat those guys too until I go pro in MMA in 2005. And that is significant. That year was significant for so many reasons. Not only did I make my pro debut in MMA, but it was also when the ultimate fighter came out on TV. So now the culture was totally different. People are getting more and more exposed to it. And my exposure, my exposure was firsthand. I got beaten the first round of my pro MMA debut Ooh. by armbar to a purple belt under Matt Serra named James Gabbert. And Matt Serra was cornering his fighter against me. Wow. So it's great to know, like my first interaction with Matt Serra was him yelling for his, uh, his, his guy to break my arm, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, um, you know, that was on a, that was on a Saturday night and two nights later, there I am in a jujitsu class. Wow. And what was your uh, thoughts when you first started doing jujitsu? Was it like love at first sight or <laughs> one foot in, one foot out? Uh, so I had, I had dabbled in Sambo for a little bit because Sambo was to me the next step after going to wrestling, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. you're still wearing wrestling shoes. You just throw on this weird jacket. <laughs> so now I get to submit you in addition to throwing you and slamming you and pinning you. I was like, yeah, okay, that made sense. And I still didn't really respect jujitsu. So when I got into a jujitsu class, I learned on my first night, oh, I can't slam you in your guard. That's weird. <laughs> oh, leg locks are kind of taboo. That's weird. So the little bit of submission grappling that I had understood up to that point was kind of... Uh, not not cool mm -hmm. so then i realized oh man this jujitsu stuff seems kind of soft well it didn't take long for me to leave the first place i had started at and i went to a a, a, a bigger school and then i trained there until i got my blue belt and then right around that time i was going through this this debate in my in myself about what my next step was going to be i was no longer enamored with the idea of being a fighter. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that had to do with, you know, racking up a few losses back to back. But a lot of the other stuff is like, man, you get punched in the mouth next day, you go to brush your teeth and you're blood on your toothpaste, uh, toothbrush. It's like, you know, it's not a great lifestyle for a lot of people. And some people really enjoy it. I didn't at that point. So when I was looking to turn over a new leaf, um, remember like I was 18 during September 11th, <laughs> In New York. Whoa. And so I remember seeing at all of the guys in my age group leaving school, leaving their jobs, leaving all whatever to go off and enlist mm -hmm. or, or or whatever, right? Like go sign up and defend our country. But I'm old I'm also old enough to remember when I was like, you know, first grade, uh, first grade, second grade, Desert Shield, Desert Storm in the early nineties, and remembering how fast that was over. Mm -hmm. So I didn't like immediately drop everything I was doing at the time and go off and sign up. But it was still like a seed that I had planted in my head. And when I got out of school, I was no longer doing college stuff and fighting was no longer um, at, as awesome as I thought it once was. Mm -hmm. I was like, you know what? Before I get too old, I need a lifestyle change. I can see myself benefiting from this experience. And I can also see how I could bring something to the table 
being a, at the time, 25 year old man with some experiences and um, maybe make a difference. So I was only a blue belt in jujitsu and it wasn't really hard to take a break from that and go and serve. But I ended up finding a really cool club that was um, partnered up with the all Marine wrestling team. So I got to work with those guys, um, some of the wrestlers, and then also the jujitsu program and made some really cool friends that I still talk to to this day, like Marcel Fucci and um, some others. And man, I, I got bit again by the bug and this time more seriously because I'm no longer striking and doing that stuff. Mm -hmm. So I just dove straight into the grappling only. And I started to really fine tune my game with a bunch of guys who were just like enthusiastic amateurs like me. Mm -hmm. But I was recognized by a group of other people. And next thing you know, like the people who were supervising that program, um, that was in Jacksonville, North Carolina at Camp Lejeune. These guys were out in Winston-Salem and uh, they decided that I was ready for a purple belt. I got a purple belt. Um, I felt like the um, the quintessential belt that doesn't fit. Mm -hmm. Like, man, I don't know if I'm, I'm really a purple belt. Competed in the gi, got smoked, did some no-gi, mixed results. When At that time, when you feel like the belt doesn't fit necessarily and you're losing your competitions or getting mixed results in competitions... If you, what is the self-talk that you had in those moments? And, and also how do you reconcile with that? Well, first off, failure is never going to be something that distracts me from a goal. So if I set out to do something and I fail at it, cool. If something was so easy, you can just master it right away. It's probably not worth your time. So I'm not, I'm not turned off by the idea of having something be difficult. And to be honest, you know, I have an incredible record of, of wins to my, to my name now, mm -hmm. but I went to 10 tournaments at white and blue belt and didn't score a single victory. Oh, 10 tournaments, not 10 matches, 10 mm -hmm. tournaments wow. without ever winning. Like, I think some people after their first time, second time, and definitely when you start getting closer to double digits would be like, maybe this isn't for you. Mm -hmm. But I understood that it's not all about winning. So there would be things that I would do well, and I would really look at those and be like, okay, cool, let me sharpen that. And then the things that I wouldn't do well, I would make corrections on. So it's a really cliche saying, but when they say you either win or you learn, mm -hmm. what they're trying to say is the losses will really resonate with you and light a fire under your butt, and that's how you're learning. But man, the things that I was succeeding with even if it was just, I scored a takedown and then I got caught or I passed a guard and then I got caught, or maybe I felt like I went for submissions and gave up position. And therefore the other person went on points, whatever the lesson was, I was learning a ton, even though I didn't get a win. Mm -hmm. And then it was almost overnight after I took a long break. And then I got with the Marine Corps team that I just went on a winning streak. Mm. And then I remember not losing another match for over a hundred matches. Wow. And it was insane. It was years without a loss. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I finally started losing again, it was such a refreshing thing to know that I still had a lot of improvement to make. And now I'm going up against purple belts and really high caliber people. And it was, it was awesome. But, you know, those losses at that point were also telling me that I hadn't developed my fundamentals. 
So I went to a place where fundamentals was like the number one thing. Mm -hmm. And that's how I ended up falling under uh, Master Pedro Sauer. And when I went there, it wasn't even just the fundamentals. It was like learning jujitsu from scratch again, because everything was just so clean. And if I had been passing the guard up to that point, it was wrong. If you could dig into that <laughs> a little deeper. Sure. Um, so, so clean in comparison to, uh, let's, let's use like a, a basic bullfighter pass, right? Mm -hmm. The average person who does a bullfighter pass grabs the pants or grabs the legs and does like a throw by mm -hmm. and runs their body around in a semicircle. So right? that's where you approach the opponent and their legs are in front of you. You grab their legs and you try to throw it one way and pretend to throw it one way and then throw it the other way. Yeah. So <laughs> like when you think of the bullfighter with the little flag and they go, ole, and the bull <laughs> runs through that. Yeah. That's why they call it the bullfighter pass or the, in, in the Portuguese, they call it Toriando, mm -hmm. right? Um, that would be like my passive choice at blue belt or purple belt. And then as I started to realize, you know, that's an athletic move. That's a move that requires me to be faster, right? Mm -hmm. And faster and stronger to a degree. Um, Attribute-based movements should not be the cornerstone of your jujitsu. It's good to have attributes and then learn when to use them. But if they come first, you're not doing good jujitsu. That's like saying, you know, I, I grappled Gordon Ryan twice, who's arguably one of the best in the world. Mm -hmm. He didn't beat me because he was more physical then. He was 169 pounds. He beat me because he was more technical. Mm. And now that he's much bigger, it's just scary, right? Mm -hmm. Because now you have a guy like Gordon who is supremely knowledgeable in his skill and a physical specimen. Mm -hmm. So if I grappled Gordon today, it would not be well for me. Right. Mm -hmm. And in fact, a year ago, I grappled him for fun mm -hmm. when he came to North Carolina to teach a seminar. And the night before I got to grapple Gordon in the gi. Mm -hmm. Now, when I grappled him for money, it was in no gi in mm -hmm. the finals of the finishers event. The very first one, um, he got the grand prize. I got second place and I ended up only walking out with a couple hundred bucks in my pocket for fastest submission of the day. Mm -hmm. Um, but that was my first time meeting Gordon. And then the next month we grappled for a title with the all-star invitational and he beat me again. And in both cases, it was like, man, he just outclassed me mm. now that he is much bigger than me. And last year he was about, I think two two twenty five or two thirty five. If he hears this interview, he'll correct me. But <laughs> I mean, he was, he was still really big then. And I mean, it, it was a little bit more fair for me being in the gi mm -hmm. because I have more experience than him at it, but he's still just grappling with higher level training partners on the regular. Mm -hmm. So his, his comp, his level of comfort in the gi, you could tell wasn't necessarily there yet mm -hmm. a year ago, but you can definitely tell he still knows what the hell he's doing. And he still gets to my back and he still does all the things that he did to me in our matches. And I'm like, damn, man, this is some PTSD on grappling. <laughs> but when I went to Pedro's, I started learning how to do more technical approaches to everything, whether it be, you know, where, where I should have my feet on the mat, what kind of connections do I have between a post, a frame and my, my, my midsection is my spinal alignment off when I do something. Am I reaching? Am I using the correct amount of fingers? <laughs> like it's something as stupid as that. Right. <laughs> but it all adds up. And when you start taking it into consideration of there's maybe 50 things that you can 
actually do to the human body, but then there's variations to those things. Mm. And the permutations makes it tens of thousands of things. Every individual thing needs three to 5,000 reps before you have a level of understanding that you don't have to think about it anymore. Mm -hmm. And you're only going to live on this earth for so long. So now you have to say to yourself, man, that's a whole lot of zeros. I don't have all that time. So you have to really pick and choose carefully what you want to be a specialist of. And if you're not going to be a specialist, at least be a well-rounded jack of all trades, but understand a specialist will find the thing that you're not really good at and exploit it. Mm-hmm. So I decided to go the route of the specialist and I specialize in arm and chokes. And then I just made that the, the backbone of my game for a long time, for a long time. It still is today. And even though the one specific type of arm and choke that I do the most of, um, Dars, Dars. <laughs> yeah. The Bravo. The, the, way, the way in which I started applying it is so different from how everybody else is doing it. People go, man, that's, that's so wild. You came up with this innovative way of, of securing it, locking it, and finishing it. And it's like, you know, you could say that, but it, it, it would be like saying we haven't gotten past, you know, a wooden wheel on a wagon. Mm. We're still using wheels, but the the tires you have on your car are just vastly superior to a wooden wheel on a wagon mm-hmm. or a stone wheel for like a caveman. <laughs> you know, we're, we're not reinventing the wheel. We're just making a wheel that has better traction. Mm. So the mechanics that people used in the 60s and 70s when the Gracies were, you know, coming to their prominence in Brazil. And then when you think about them coming into America in the mid to late 80s, that jujitsu isn't obsolete per se, but we can improve upon it. <laughs> and if we don't think that the jujitsu that we're seeing today isn't improved compared to how it used to be, you're mistaken. <laughs> and there are some old school guys that just don't want to hear it because they can't keep up with the times. <laughs> what I love most about my instructor, Pedro Sauer, is he just turned 60 years old last October. 60 years old. Ooh. And he had no problem learning what the worm guard is. And it's like, he'll never do it, Mm -hmm. but he's a student of the, he's a student of the game. So he wants to know, Oh, let me feel that my friend. Oh, okay. That's pretty cool. Yeah. But I would do this and you know, and then he'll rip it apart, but he needs to feel it. He needs to see it. He needs to understand what your objectives are. And then he's, when I say master sour, Mm -hmm. like let's, let's talk about this. He doesn't own slaves, right? (laughs) He's master sour because he is an eighth degree coral belt in the yard. At third degree black belt in the Gracie Jiu Jitsu system, you can start to call yourself professor, mm-hmm. right? But there's also a professorial um, certification you have to go through, and it's legit. Wow. Nowadays, anybody gets a black belt, it's like, oh, professor, professor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Third degree and this class. Now, at seventh degree, you get a coral belt. It's black and red and black and red, like a coral snake. Mm-hmm. At seventh degree, you can get the honorific master of jujitsu wow so pedro is master sour he's in eighth degree now the next step after him is the same thing with with master hicks and gracie which would be the red belt Mm -hmm. at ninth degree the last belt for anybody who is a non-creator of the art and then you become gm grandmaster Mm -hmm. right grande messe and um that honorific is bestowed on you because it's like man you've put 45 years into your black belt 45 years into your black belt Wow. So that clock doesn't start until you have a black belt. 
So let's say it takes you 15 years to get your black belt. Mm -hmm. That'll be 60 total years in the art before your red belt. So I'm not saying it's a rush to get your black belt, but you're going to have that belt for a long time. Yeah. And the, the degrees for us are every three years for the first three, Mm -hmm. then five more years each for the three after that, then seven more years for the three after that. So when you do the math, it's 45 years from black belt to red belt. So when, when we say master sour, we're talking about a guy who has uh, just under 40 years of being a black belt. That's intense. Yeah. Yeah. He's been doing jujitsu for 46 years now. And so when I say master of jujitsu, he, he can see a technique and be like, Oh, I see why that works, but now let's make it a little better. So when I started doing the Darce choke, as we know it, because Mm -hmm. Joe DRC, um, via, uh, Mark Lehman and, uh, God, what was that guy from bully beat down? Oh man, Matt, uh, mayhem Miller, mm-hmm. mayhem Miller called it the Darce. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and then it just became, because of the Mark Lehman, you would have the Mars, right. <laughs> and then, um, one of my heroes, good friends and contemporaries, Jeff Glover, mm-hmm. who I've trained with a bunch and I've been to tons of his seminars, private lesson. Um, we have a flow roll that you can see online. Um, if you just look up David Porter, Jeff Glover, you could see us flowing in it. It's beautiful. I'll watch it to this day because it was just such a good role. Oh, wow. But um, Jeff Glover, you know, he took it to the next level. I think that him, Bill Cooper, and Ryan Hall, all three of them added so much to that mechanic. And especially as, as all of them being American black belts, mm-hmm. they took something that the, the Brazilians were doing with the gi, the bravo, mm-hmm. and just inserting that arm in style attack to their game made all of them a different kind of threat in an era when there was already not a lot of exposure to the art and Americans weren't taken seriously. And now it's like, boom, this move is such an American jujitsu move. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if that's initially what made it resonate with me because people see my long arms and like, Oh, of course you do that. (laughs) And then I have to explain to them like, no, anybody can do this move. Mm -hmm. I don't care how short your arms are. You're just doing it wrong. It's like rubber guard. Cut the angles. No kidding, man. (laughs) And I can't, I can't even start with that. Like I played, (laughs) I played rubber guard today uh, on not only our good friend, Jeff Mm -hmm. Shaw, but on, um, did you meet Kendall Brown belt? Um, no, tall, I did not tall, meet Kendall. kid with red hair and tattoos. Oh yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. He's, he's, he's really dope too. So like any day I get to train with both him and Jeff mm-hmm. is a great day for me. <laughs> right. Um, quick segue within the show, mm-hmm. you know, like that area doesn't really have a lot of incredible talent. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a Brown belt is like a God in Bellingham. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. It's the I same here. Well, I came from uh, Master Sour's headquarters mm-hmm. where I trained with the man every day. Mm-hmm. And we had um, at one point 15 black belts. Wow. So for me coming from, okay, cool. I've got 14 black belt training partners to, man, I'm really happy to roll with these two brown belts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, it, it's kind of, that's, that's the biggest, um, that's the biggest loss I suffered by, by mm-hmm. coming out here, but I've gained so much in terms of like peace of mind and calmness of spirit mm-hmm. to the point where I can, I can be perfectly happy with that knowing like I am now the level to which everyone's going to rise. So there's some, there's some stuff to that, but now going back real quick and I'll finish this thought, Mm -hmm. you know, the arm in chokes, the Bravo, the Darce, right? 
when when Pedro first started seeing me do the move, he didn't even know my name yet. Like I was still like amigo, right? Yeah, yeah amigo. <laughs> but I caught his attention because of how cleanly I executed this move, understanding that I had watched Glover do it for years. And at that point, hadn't trained with Glover yet. I was still a purple belt. Um, I, I trained based off of his Darcipedia DVD, which mm -hmm. is now like, um, like scripture, right? Yeah. Like people who want to learn the Darce go to that source first, mm -hmm. or they should. <laughs> and then I remember having like black belt or um, was it Jujitsu Magazine? It was either Jujitsu Magazine or one of the spinoffs, like in the early days, like 2011 or 12. And I had it with me in Afghanistan and I'm in the desert, like flipping through and watching Jeff Glover do like <laughs> this kick out of the back take to deep half from, from deep half to the Dars. And I was like, all right, Whoa. this is bonkers. But anyway, I remember just having this understanding of the mechanic from that going to Pedro's and then having him give me some, okay, these are the things you should be thinking all the time. And now that I have this rule set, I'm trying to run this like, piece of script against that stuff that Pedro is giving me and it didn't work. Mm. So I had to almost take the Glover stuff and run it through Pedro's filter. Mm -hmm. And then what came out on the other side is how I do it today. And now people are like, man, that's so weird and innovative. And realistically, I'm just taking two brilliant minds. Mm -hmm. And this was like the love child that came out through me. And I remember rolling with Glover, one of the first or either the first or second time and him going, dude, you have so many incredible setups. I'm just blown away. And then, and this was like in a private lesson, like mm -hmm. him, me and this guy, Andrew Foster, who's like my Bravo bro, my, my Darce dude. Yeah. And so Andrew Foster, myself, we took this private lesson with Glover and afterwards he was just like, dude, you have such a crazy understanding of this. And I was like, well, I was hoping like we would fine tune it together. How long have you been spending working on the Darce at that point? Um, during the point of this story, when I yeah. was with a Glover in the private lesson, um, whew, I would say two and a half solid years of dedication to one move. Ooh. Yeah. And at that point, I think I had just under 80,000 reps. Mm -hmm. So like, let that number sink in for a second. 80,000 reps on a move. Right now, think about it. I know people that haven't shrimped 80,000 times, mm -hmm. like the most basic fundamental movement. And they might be like a blue or a purple belt. Like I haven't shrimped 80,000 times. Yes. I would get training partners and I would drill for hours. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't have a training partner to drill with, I would use a grappling dummy. And if I didn't have a grappling dummy, I would use a mop like handle mm -hmm. and just wrap a towel around it and shoot around it. Right. And just get my hand timing down. Was that always your approach to integrating technique? Um, but remember I came from a striking yeah. background where it's like, you can't ask Mike Tyson to quantify how many times he's thrown a jab. That makes sense. Right. Mm -hmm. He's probably thrown millions of jabs. Mm -hmm. Um, and then with wrestling, like you go into any wrestling room that's serious in America, I don't care if it's high school or middle school, they're going to learn one technique that day and they're going to drill for two hours. Mm -hmm. Right. So having come from that background, I'm a workhorse, not a show horse mm -hmm. and I have no problem getting my hands dirty. So if it was like, man, class starts at seven, but I showed up when they opened at five, guess what? I got two hours to drill mm -hmm. and it would not be uncommon for me to bring 
either two sets of no gi or two sets of gis to a class because what I would show up in, I would sweat through drilling mm -hmm. and then I'd have to put on something fresh before the class even started. <laughs> and then there are guys showing up late to class wondering why they're not getting better. Mm -hmm. And I'll just say this, no millionaire ever made their million working a standard 40 hour work week. Mm -hmm. It's what you do outside of that. And it's the same thing with class. If you only come to class, you'll get good. Mm -hmm. If you're gonna be great, you gotta do more. Mm -hmm. And this isn't a knock at people who work a 40 hour work week and supply for their families. And this isn't a knock against people who are recreational jujitsu players, but you're not going to have, you know, best selling DVDs and tutorials. You're not going to be on the seminar circuit teaching. You're not going to travel the globe doing this, this niche sport. If you're not doing what it takes to be great, mm -hmm. and what it takes to be great is drilling constantly, perfecting your craft and being a professional. And just because you got paid to do an event once does not actually make you a pro. Mm -hmm. Being a professional and acting like one is what makes you a professional. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. um, by the time I was with Glover, I had put two and a half years into that one move and maybe 80,000 reps. Now I've put over five and a half years into the move and have over a quarter of a million reps on it. Oh. And it's to the point where like when I was catching it today, like hours ago in training, um, even, even just Kendall who was like, Oh man, you still just do it so easily on me. <laughs> and he's a brown belt and he knows it's coming, mm -hmm. but it's like, yeah, you, you can know it's coming, but if it's that good, it's that good. So I sometimes have dialogue with people who are more on the, from white to purple range where they'll go to a move looking to catch people. Cause they're like, Oh, this move that I'm getting, everyone's catching me into it. So now I'm moving on to the next thing I've, read in the art of learning by josh wazakin great book. and um about the depth not breadth principle mm -hmm. and how it's beyond beyond the surface of tech of technique like you know i got my i do leg locks and i'm dominating with legs right now and i'm catching people off guard right and once you're met with resistance you know instead of switching moves you merely continue the counter sequence mm -hmm. until you can catch them it, yeah. it, and with that approach like it just from what you're talking about like people know it's coming with the dars however you still get them in it, it yes so to use your your analogy which is beautiful you have to understand at one at what point if i were to take this bottle that's sitting on this table at what point do i tip it let go and it doesn't go back to its base weight mm -hmm. right there's going to be that point in time where you can feel it's past the point of 51%. Mm -hmm. And now mm -hmm. that last 49 is just gravity pulling it over. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, you're going to encounter that with resistance on a training partner or in a grappling match where you're trying to go for a move and you feel like they're getting away, but you can make the adjustment to bring them back onto your side of it. Mm -hmm. When I see people exerting themselves on a losing move, it's because they didn't recognize that point of no return where now they have more on their side than you have on yours. Mm -hmm. And you're still trying to go for it with the counter to the counter to the counter, but you're just constantly behind. Mm -hmm. And now you're expending energy on something that was losing that you could have bailed on and moved to something else for, mm -hmm. right? So the biggest difference is right now, people are still very, very hip to um, what we would consider basics, right? Mm -hmm. So you show an arm bar to a karate guy, they will be blown away, <laughs> right? But we're so comfortable with arm bars and being in the arm bar position, yet 
why is the spider web such a scary position in EBI overtime rounds? Hmm. It, it, this is a basic maneuver, but mm -hmm. we're scared of it because we all have that many reps on it and you can fine tune it. And when you start in the spider web, you're so far behind on the defense. Mm -hmm. That's why it's a dominant position. Why do you think more people lately are choosing that as opposed to the back in the EBI overtime? Familiarity or is it because it's more of a dominant position? I, the back is more dominant yeah. by and large, mm -hmm. but the spider web is a dominant position that starts you with a submission, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Whereas when you choose the back, you have a seatbelt grip and that's mm -hmm. it, yeah. right? So you don't, you're not in on a submission. You just have 100% control. Mm -hmm. The spider web is like 50-50, right? You mm -hmm. have 50% control, 50% offense already going just by having that arm looped under. So it's a scarier position. And when I was at the last finishers tournament I did, um, Khalil Falala from uh, Detroit MMA and I had a match in the very first round. And it wasn't the most um, visually appealing match because I felt like he was doing a great job of just neutralizing my offense. Mm -hmm. And he didn't mount much of an offense during that 10 minute period of time. So when we go to the overtime, he actually wins the coin flip and chooses to put me in dominant position first. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. It was like kind of a, a mind trick. Yeah, right? that would be. And so I chose the back and I eventually get him in a, a body triangle situation with uh, an arm across his jawline mm -hmm. and I face choke him. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like the full on Khabib Nurmagomedov versus Conor McGregor. Yeah. So I, I rear naked choke his face and he taps. Now the time on the clock was like a minute and 30 for that to happen. So he did a lot of work while I had him on, on the back take mm -hmm. to not get submitted for a long period of time. But I eventually got there because back is just such a more dominant position. Mm -hmm. So it was harder for him to get away. And I ended up getting my submission, but now he gets to go. And because he wins the flip and made me go first, now he's got time to work with. So now he understands he has to win quicker. Mm. Now, if he had escaped fast from my back mm -hmm. or if my submission took maybe 30 seconds longer to get, mm -hmm. he probably would have chosen back as well because now he just has to get a faster submission time. Mm -hmm. But now he's really pressed for getting a fast submission time. So he chose the spider web mm. because it's, it's a double edged sword. Either I'm going to get out super quick and he loses either way, <laughs> but you're quicker to the submission in that position. And that's what he shows. And you know what? He got me in a faster time from that position. He moves on to the next round. And it was brilliant strategy. Mm -hmm. And I can sit here knowing I lost that match and still just respect the gamemanship of what the rules were. He played a very conservative 10 minute round with me where he never got to my back or a spider web position in that 10 minute round. Mm -hmm. But I also never got to his back in that round. So who knows? And then because of that overtime style, you know, you got J.M. Holland and Jack uh, and uh, Zach Meslani uh, running finishers with mm -hmm. um, Abraham Awad, Marcos Duarte from Show the Art and all the, you know, uh, supporting characters involved in it. And they're um, they're running 10th Planet Bethlehem and uh, in New Jersey, Grace Gundrum is with them. And so I, I got to know those guys when they had the very first finishers, when wow. I made it to the finals with Gordon. Mm -hmm. So I've been in more finishers events than anybody else. Um, I think Ethan Crellenston and 
John Callistine each have three now, mm-hmm. and I've been in five. Oh wow! So no, sorry, I've been in four, but mm-hmm. um, I've been in more than anybody else. And if I hadn't retired, I'd definitely do the next one. It's just such a great event. But that's one situation where a rule set can determine your skill set. Mm-hmm. And Khalil did a great job, and and. I have no problem saying he he did everything in his power to make sure he won that match technically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he ultimately ended up fighting, uh, grappling uh, Ethan Krellenstein and losing. Mm-hmm. But Ethan's a killer. Right? Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. he's going to be in ADCCs this year. Um, yeah. Anyway, just surround yourself with good people. Do good mm-hmm. training. Put in the work. Yeah. Put in the work. And that, that seems like the most important is just to, be, to put in the work because, uh, like I said before, you get people who get lost, especially, you know, beginners or amateurs getting lost in the minutia of technique. But it seems like it, when I talk to experienced people, it's not so much about the weapon that you choose, but how well you know how to operate the weapon that you have chosen. Let me ask you a question. Have you seen yes. John Wick too? Uh, yes, I have. <laughs> Give him a pencil. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, that's it, true. It's like if, if you are a, if you are the embodiment of conviction, mm-hmm. you'll make it happen. Mm. Right. Your willpower is so strong. Like the reason why John Wick makes all those people shake in their boots mm-hmm. is because they respect his willpower. Mm-hmm. They understand that, yes, you'll be able to get to him, but are you going to want it more than he does? Mm. And that desire is what's going to make him get to that next level. And that to me is like the will to win, right? Mm-hmm. The willpower. So, when I was a purple belt and I didn't have the technique, I had to use a lot of that, right? I wasn't skillful enough to make my victories happen, but I would just pressure and pressure and pressure until I would just destroy someone's will. And then I would get lucky and get a submission. Mm-hmm. And then I went to Pedro's and I learned the skill. But guess what? It is so valuable. It's the same way I was talking about Gordon. You know, Gordon was technically better than me then, and now he is much more physical too. Mm-hmm. It's not a chance for me. But the same thing can be said about if I had to grapple myself when I was 215 pounds of jacked muscle, Mm -hmm. but a purple belt who didn't know the things I know now, the 179 version that's sitting here in the chair today would smoke that 215 Mm -hmm. pound former Marine, Mm -hmm. right? And it's weird how, you know, size doesn't matter until it does. Mm -hmm. When does it matter? When they also have the same level of skill. So if we have two black belts who started on the same, or two people that start jujitsu on the same day, and now they're both black belts on the same day years later, but one has a physical advantage, that person will win. Mm-hmm. That's when the that's when the physicality matters. Initially, I think when men go into jujitsu, they think that their strength will matter more than it does. Mm-hmm. And when women go into jujitsu, they'll realize the strength didn't matter as much as they thought. Mm. And then we both meet in the middle, right? (laughs) Yes. And then you realize like, yes, a Gabby Garcia will dominate women's brackets because of her physicality, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean like she won't lose to Mackenzie Dern, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Or whomever, just because she's bigger. Yeah. It will matter. But eventually someone with more technique will, will just going to drive them to pursue technique further. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, one of the most interesting things with this upcoming 2019 ADCCs to watch out for is, you know, Gordon moved up to the just under 99 kilogram Mm -hmm. um, weight class. And last year, or sorry, two years ago, because it's every other year, Mm -hmm. um, he was the winner of his weight class at 88. So 
Um, we'll see because I know he's improved, but I also know he just had his knee worked on. Mm-hmm. I would love to see him um, showcase some of the things that he's also been working on outside of his normal wheelhouse because people mm-hmm. were expecting a lot of heel hooks at ADCCs and realistically he was doing more strangles. Mm-hmm. He caught Cyborg in a heel hook and that was like very, very savage. And, um, you know, that's great, but I, I think I think people mis, misrepresent the Danaher death squad because Eddie was such a, a huge component of that team when they first came out that they thought they all just did like locks. Mm. It's like, no, they do a lot more than that. In fact, both of my losses to Gordon were um, non-leg lock finishes. One mm-hmm. was an arm bar and then one was a rear naked choke. Mm-hmm. And it's like, why didn't Gordon play leg, leg attacks with me? Mm-hmm. Especially in our second match. I even f- put my foot up to him at one point playing bottom half guard as if to say like, go for it, let's see. Mm-hmm. But I think at that stage in Gordon's development when he was still a brown belt, I think he was more inclined to just feel the difference. So when somebody was intelligently putting their legs in certain configurations, he knew reason. not to go for it. Yeah, that makes sense. Right? Because he's, he's in an, it, it, it's like a fighter in, the M- in MMA who has fight IQ. Mm-hmm. In grappling, you can have a grappling IQ as well. And Gordon knows just by the sensitivity if this is going to be shooting fish in a barrel or is this going to be a dog fight. Mm-hmm. And he's not going to opt for a dog fight. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the that's where I can respect him as an opponent the most. It was like in our second match, I tried to just get him to go for legs <laughs> because I have ver- I have very good leg locks too. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, you know Diego Bispo, who is many time IBJJF gold medalist and world champ, um, great dude, and he and I are friends now. But before I really knew him, he was a black belt with lots of IBJJF gold medals. And I have never competed in the IBJJF, and I was a brown belt at the time. We had a match for the All-Star Invitational, and I heel-hooked him savagely in like three and a half minutes. And for a long time, he wouldn't stop, you know, complaining about it because it was in the gi. Mm. But for that particular um, tournament, not only do they allow brown and black belts to grapple each other, but for these super fights, all submissions are legal, including Mm -hmm. heel-hooks in the gi. And so I felt like that that um, that gift that gets thrown around the internet every June fifth of Elio Gracie hill hooking his son <laughs> yes. in the gi, and I just have like Snoop Dogg glasses, and it's like <laughs> you know thug life. Yes, but that was one instance of I go into the match mm-hmm. knowing only only after I studied my opponent, man, this guy is way better than me at just about every aspect of the game except one. Hmm. So I'm going to show him the area where I excel and he doesn't. <laughs> and I made the leg locks happen in that match. Whereas um, when I grappled Ataish Rafael from GF team, who is once again, another incredibly savage Brazilian black belt. Um, Ataish, he, um, he shut me down with, with a lot of it. Like he went in respecting my leg lock game. And when I tried it on him, he was just like, nope, I prepared for this. And then because I had put all of my eggs into one basket, he eventually, you know, takes my back and then, and he gets the win. Mm-hmm. And then future super fights are hit or miss depending on who I'm going up against and how they prepared. So skill sets are determined by rule sets, but I think it's good to be at least well-versed in every aspect of the jujitsu game. So if you don't know 
any leg locks, you're wrong. If all you know is leg locks, you're also wrong. <laughs> what would you define as having adequate knowledge in a technique? Because when you look at the DARS, right, you have this standard, which is I drill this as much as I can, right? So I can attain mm. mastery or achieve mastery in this one day. But when you look at all these other tech techniques that you're not focusing on so heavily, what is your um, expectation or how do you approach those? Because mm. I imagine it's not just showing up to class. So imagine it's something more. So let's, let's use something as stupid as like this really funny saying I'll throw out every once in a while, which is mm -hmm. back in my day, we only, we only had two types of arm locks, <laughs> bent and straight, <laughs> yeah. but boil it down. Mm -hmm. That's it. Mm. It, it. It's, it's a funny joke. But then when you sit there and you scratch your head, you're like, it's really just bent and straight arm locks. Mm -hmm. So what do we mean by that? We mean when it's bent, we're twisting on the shoulder. When it's straight, we're attacking the elbow. Mm. Now, if you want to get really technical, yes, you can do a bicep slicer and you can compress mm -hmm. and okay, great, right? But we're still talking about bent or straight arms. Now, what does it take to be proficient in an arm lock? If you boil it down into those two components, now you have to say, do I want to specialize in twisting arm locks or straight arm locks? When you start attacking the leg, it's like, do I want to be a proficient person with straight leg attacks or twisting leg attacks? Mm. When, you, when you know it, it means you can execute it in a vacuum with no resistance. Then you can execute it with resistance and you have countermeasures of your own to make sure that you get once again back on target without mm. losing it. And then you should also be able to understand it well enough from the offensive point of view that if someone is doing it to you, you know everything that they need to make it happen and you won't let it happen because your defense is there. When you have those sides of the equation down, then I think you understand a technique. Okay. Now, when you start adding more to it, I think you have to find those cousin moves. So let's say you did the straight ankle lock and the straight knee bar, mm -hmm. and now you're proficient in them. Now start adding the twisting leg locks and do toe holds and heel hooks. Mm -hmm. And once you have them, then you could start talking about some of those more like obscure submissions like calf slicers and electric chairs and banana splits and all the things that are like attacking the hip or attacking different areas of the leg. Mm -hmm. Because you have those two other more fundamental and deeper um, areas of the leg attack game down, now you can be more obscure. So now I would say, okay, cool. You have a very well-versed leg attack game. Mm -hmm. Now, if all you know is straight arm bar and Kimura or an Americana, it's like, great. You have the fundamentals of arm locks. Now we need to start figuring out wrist locks, bicep slicers, other types of shoulder compressions, you know, and once you get there, the, the sky's the limit, right? Mm -hmm. Now you have to defend it. Now you have to go through it and get it from the backside. Same with all of your chokes. Mm -hmm. Gi chokes are different than no gi chokes. Um, how you employ the different strategies of which hand is your defense hand. Now you get even better with it. Now you know that if it's right hand around my neck, my right hand is the only hand that's important for the defense. Mm. So now my left hand can do some other stuff. Well, if that person behind me understands that this hand's the most important hand, that's the one they trap first. Mm -hmm. So now that's I've got to clear that hand with my free hand to get back on target. Mm. So now both people understand it so well, you get these really awesome Mexican standoffs and a grappling mm -hmm. war where you'll see these shootouts. And that's what we look, that's what we live for, right? Mm -hmm. So when I think of Polaris, um, I wanna say it was either Polaris two or three, 
Eddie Cummings had a match with one of my good friends, Riley Bodycomb. And Riley, who has instructed me on several occasions in his form of dynamic grappling method, and um, Riley is the kind of guy who will stand right in front of you like you don't exist. And he's not even looking down. And he just like puts his hips forward and is like, what up, bro? (laughs) And that's his style. He just doesn't care because he's so confident in his mechanics. But he also knows that the structure of his body being in that way is Mm -hmm. hard to attack. And so watching him just like step into Eddie's stance, not once, not twice, not three times, but four times and like come out of it unscathed. And then on the fourth time is when Eddie actually caught him. And you could say, man, he was playing with fire. Or you could say, man, Eddie really used his grappling IQ to figure out like he wasn't going to beat it this way. Mm-hmm. So he had to change it that last time and he got it. Oh, wow. And it's like, man, it's such a great match to watch two high level technicians who both understand the elements of the leg attack game mm-hmm. and how one can just be like, cool, you are probably the best in the world at this, but I'm going to find out right now. <laughs> and I, and I mean, say what you want, but. I'm not going to get into a striking match with Mike Tyson today, mm-hmm. even though he's older, because I don't want to test my chin on that. Mm-hmm, yeah. But here's here's Riley going up against Eddie and he's like, I want to see how good my leg defense is. <laughs> oh, wow. Not on not on some scrub, but arguably the best guy in the world at his weight class in it. Mm-hmm. And to, to say like he got out of it three times, like I know people that haven't got out of it once. Wow. Right. So. How many times have I failed the Dars? I don't know. Um, in competition, I think I, I think I failed it twenty times. Mm-hmm. Right, and my number of successful Dars attacks, um, and and if I'm being very specific, it's twenty five submission victories via Dars. But when I think of Dars victories, I mean I used it and I ended up winning. Mm-hmm. Um, I have over seventy matches of submission victories that were byproducts of the Dars setup. Because either their defense leads them into a rabbit hole that they can't get out of, and mm-hmm. my contingency plan took over, and then I win shortly thereafter. I consider that all a byproduct of the position. Mm-hmm. The same way that if I put you in a triangle, not a triangle choke, mm-hmm. but just the position of my leg over your shoulder and my legs crossed behind you with your arm in, that's a position. Mm-hmm. Like, I can do so much from that position. I can do a wrist lock. I can do a shoulder lock. I can do a bicep compression. I can do chokes still. I can do non-triangle chokes with that triangle position, right? Uh, uh, And I mean, just think about how like, you know, everything from like the Hindu teeny to, you know, or two arms in with a dead orchard, Mm -hmm. right? Like you think of these positions and people still only think of the triangle as this is the vessel that gets me to the triangle choke. Mm Mm-hmm. But the triangle is a position. To me, the Dars is a position. And I get there so often that I can hang there. I can re-roll. They gator roll. I roll with them. I come back to a better position on top. Mm. I will do what um, Bill Cooper calls the sonic roll, where I actually jump over the person to go to what Glover calls the Mars. Um, I I have so many backup plans to backup plans. And when people try to run away from it, even if the actual position of my hand on the bicep leaves the bicep, mm-hmm. they're not out of the woods yet. And sometimes the regrip happens and they'll get back into the choke or they're just transferring from the Dars into the Anaconda or from the Dars into the guillotine. Um, 
one of my favorites is the Darce bar. It's it's an arm bar using just my feet while you're in the Darce position. What? Yeah, it's a great move. Wow. And so all these things are, like I said, I would consider them the Darce submission mm-hmm. chain. The same way that, you know, a honey hole position is not just for heel hooks. Mm-hmm. So... And by the way, like I, I just know based on your training, like when I'm mm-hmm. speaking in the 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 10th planet vernacular, yeah. it's I, I mean obviously like I train with a lot with the 10th planet guys. Mm-hmm. So yeah. for me, um, by the way, I'll take a second to shout out 10th planet Chicago. Um, I'll be seeing them in June. Ooh, um, I've I've taught out there three times now, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, between. Uh, Maurice Ackham, um, Chili Jameson, all those dudes out there, uh, Pat Benavides. I like all those dudes in Chicago. They're good people. And I ha- I still haven't met like some of the more uh, um, bigger named guys that run that facility because I- I'm just running around with like the purple and brown belts. But mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, my, my buddy uh, Javier Palomo, who's another R Dojo, Riley Bodycombs group. He, he cross trains between Redzevic and 10th Planet Chicago. Mm-hmm. And so he hooked me up with those 10th Planet dudes about two years ago. And so now every time I go through Chicago, which is two to three times a year, I try to train there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm up to date with all my 10th Planet stuff because I did a lot of it in the Marine Corps when I was a blue belt. And oh, really? Belt. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest manuscripts I would have was Mastering the Rubber Guard ah, by Eddie Bravo. Yes, that's one I got to pick up. Yeah, I think you should. And... Uh, you know, people might say, oh, man, but you're a Pedro Sauer guy. Aren't they like old school self-defense and like doing basically jujitsu kata? Mm-hmm. And they're f- f- firmly wrong when they think that. But more importantly, I have such a diverse background where I didn't have great instruction while I was training in the military and I was bouncing around a lot. So we had to learn from books. We mm-hmm. had to learn from video. And I would say like the three the three books that helped me the most were uh, – Mastering the mastering the rubber guard, Marcelo Garcia's X guard book, mm-hmm. and then Dave Camarillo's submit everyone. Yeah, and that octopus hub that Dave Camarillo does is still to this day one of the most underutilized positions in all of jujitsu. Mm-hmm. And every time I use it, I have great success. And then people say, "What the hell was that?" And I go, "Dude, it's <laughs> been in this book for nine years. Like yeah. <laughs> the knowledge is out there, but people people need to be led to water before they can drink." Oh yes, absolutely. Yeah. And when it comes down to the Dars, is that just something that you enjoy doing? Like, is that where you pick your specialization? Because I have a, I kind of struggle with that personally to where it's like rubber guard is my favorite thing to play. Um, but then I also have back, or, you know, back submissions and then leg locks. And I, I have to pick between one of them, at least for specialization. Mm, that's tough. So. When I started to realize that there was a huge gap in understanding of that particular move mm-hmm. and that I was able to just pretty much get it on anybody for a, a, a decent amount of time, um, it it would have been all too easy to just only do that move. Mm-hmm. But the good news is, as I'm getting it more and more, my training partners were getting better at defending it. Mm-hmm. And as they're getting better at defending it, I had to get more clever with my my contingency plans and so as time went by that's when it became like a position to me Mm -hmm. now prior to that 
remember, like there's a lot of time before when I was actually proficient with the move and all the other things I did up to that. Mm-hmm. And I knew the move existed as a white belt, but I just never, it just never resonated with me. Mm-hmm. I was doing a lot of straight ankle locks and guillotines. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I just have a special place in my heart for the guillotine. And when I do the guillotine, I almost feel bad for whoever I do it on. Um, not because it's like some savage mystery, like it's going to hurt you and you don't know how it happened. Like people <laughs> understand when the guillotine's happening and they, mm-hmm. they typically know like they messed up. Like you look down or I broke your posture. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's not that it's going to hurt you. I don't have like Riley, his guillotine will mm-hmm. hurt you. Mm-hmm. Like it's just, it rips your Adam's apple apart. <laughs> and some people have that. I don't, but I feel bad in the sense of, oh man, I had to go back to like, the the old the old move set mm, yeah right <laughs> it's like the band that m- became famous for their one hit song oh yeah and now they're six albums deep and the fans <laughs> only want to hear that song <laughs> that's how i feel when i have to go to the guillotine it's like oh it's from my original set list <laughs> and so it's interesting like and, and yes the guillotine's a backup plan to my dars game so <laughs> if someone was good enough to beat the dars from me and force me into the guillotine and I win, I don't feel like I won. I feel like, man, they made me work hard. They made me go back to my 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 original skill set. Mm-hmm. They beat they beat my thing. So it's hard. And the way you balance it out, you try to find those cousin moves or those those moves that are like one step removed from the move that you're really good at. And you practice in that zone for a little bit mm-hmm. because at the very least you start to fail you can always jump back to your to your better thing mm-hmm. and then as that next thing becomes your skill set you need to build the thing after that mm-hmm. so when i tell people it's like let's come to class and learn arm bars from the guard mm-hmm. all right cool now we're going to learn arm bar to triangle now we're going to learn triangle to omoplata mm-hmm. now guess what the arm bar to omoplata does exist mm-hmm. but you learned it a b c mm-hmm. now that you learn it can go a to c or c to a you start to develop a, a, a greater sense of your game. Mm-hmm. And now you can hop around at will. But up to that point, you need to at least get that fine-tuned one move. Mm-hmm. Then you move on. So for you, if you are if you love rubber guard and you love playing it, but maybe it's losing its luster, like maybe you just figure out, all right, I'm going to go from that broken down position and rather than staying there and swimming through and doing all the systematic approaches to like, you know, crackhead control, zombie control, mission control, all that stuff. And you just keep breaking them down in different facets, either arm in or arm out. Mm -hmm. Maybe you just take your other leg, kick it back, take your hand off the foot and you go to just a high guard, Mm -hmm. right? Go to like a fundamental lower level, Mm -hmm. or maybe you start to use it as a sweeping tool, right? Mm -hmm. Now get on top in like a mounted triangle type position, or at least a high mount with a foot under the neck position Mm -hmm. and play from there. So it's different wildly from what you were doing with your, with your rubber guard up to that point, Mm -hmm. but it's familiar. Yeah. It's one step removed, but you're just either going back a step or up a step Mm -hmm. and you're, you're either playing in one of those two zones and that way you feel comfortable because if anything goes wrong, you can either move that one degree back and forth Mm -hmm. or you've advanced your position or you've kept your control. Mm -hmm. I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, Like when I was playing a little rubber guard earlier, my, my big takeaway is cool. I, I own your posture. I treat it like a salesman does a sales pitch. 
right? I, I informed you about all the benefits and the features. And then I go, what do you think? Mm-hmm. And then I sit there looking at you with a blank stare. Mm-hmm. And now if you open your mouth before I open my mouth, I know that I mentally crushed you. Mm. And now you're ready to make the sale. Mm-hmm. Right? So I'm like, so what do you think? <laughs> I can't posture up. <laughs> oh, boom. And th- then what do they do? They're going to move. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So you're just doing that through nonverbal communication. Mm. I, keep my po- I keep your posture broken. You're not giving me anything right away. But if I were to try and make that happen, mm-hmm. I'm probably going to make space that I don't want to make. And next thing you know, I lose it. So if I broke your posture, now I just wait. And mm-hmm. while you're cooking, you realize you're stuck. Mm. You don't want to be stuck. But if I'm busy and you're busy, that's a scramble. But if I'm controlling you and you're flailing, you're just giving me limbs. And then you study the reactions and you become an astute observer of all the potential reactions from there, right? Yes. And not to get morbid, but if, if we had a machine gun mm-hmm. and that valuable weapon can do incredible amounts of damage in a straight line and it doesn't really do well at hitting a large area. Mm-hmm. You can only really decide where you want to place that weapon once you get a lay of the land. And when you decide, okay, I'm going to put it here. It's because tactically it makes sense that people will more than likely come from this one area. Mm-hmm. So if there's a, f- uh, a field and it clears out and it's surrounded by trees, but there was a clear path from the forest, mm-hmm. I'm going to put it facing that path. Mm. Because even though the enemy is like, there's enemy in these woods, mm-hmm. they're going to be on the path. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> like, we're creatures of habit and we take the path of least resistance. Mm-hmm. So when a person has got their guard uh, passed and now they're turning on their side and they're putting up frames... I learned to fight not from traditional side control, chest to chest. I learned to turn. I learned to fight side control of them turn on their side with frames in, mm-hmm. because that's the most likely place they're going to be. And when you start playing with that, now you go to reactions. Um, Jeff Shaw, our mm-hmm. buddy, he had um, a video that's still up on the Dirty White Ball Radio page that summarizes one particular thing. That's, I would say. Maybe not synonymous is the right word, but it really encapsulates my game when you see me shooting a Darshuk from top side control (laughs) and I take my right, let's say I'm shooting it with my right arm Mm -hmm. and I take my right knee off the mat and I post my knee up. And so like I'm stomping on the ground and I just open my my leg up like like a dog going on a hydrant Mm -hmm. and it looks so dumb. And then you'll see the bottom person fish their legs through for a half guard. And so now they're like, ha ha, I got back to guard because guard is like your mother. She forgives Mm -hmm. you for everything, right? (laughs) Yes. So people, that's what people think. And so they get so, they get so ingrained with thinking like guard is safe. Guard is safe. So now I shot the lock with my arms. I opened my leg because your field of vision is looking at my feet. Mm -hmm. And so when I open my leg, you're like, oh, there's my opportunity. You get half guard. And now I clamp my feet together and I do the sonic roll over you. And now your legs are trapped and you're, and you're in the choke and I do this a lot. So when Jeff first noticed this, he was like, why do you do, why do you just camp there? (laughs) And I'm like, now watch what comes next. And so we're looking at the video and he's like, Oh my God, you bait that person. I was like, yeah, because we're creatures of habit (laughs) and we take the path of loose resistance. Mm. So if you can figure out like they'll most likely do this, (laughs) you'll plan it out. So you have them broken down in rubber guard. Which arm is probably not going to move? <laughs> their 
right arm or their Dep- which leg do you have over? Yeah, I have my uh, left leg over. Or wait, yeah, my left leg over. Okay, so you have your left leg over. So which arm isn't going to move? Their right their arm. Their right arm. Yeah. Right. So now you got to get really hip to either changing your gripping hand on your own leg mm-hmm. and start attacking their opposite arm with now the same side arm mm-hmm. or figuring out a way to cross over and collect that arm right oh, because yeah. that's what's going to be the most common thing mm-hmm. and once you figure out that people are lazy people are creatures of habit and you're going to figure out these systems of they'll most likely do this you'll have so many backup plans just on deck that you're not even you're we're not drilling any jujitsu right now we're talking jujitsu yeah. and you can already be like damn i should be writing notes right <laughs> yeah, exactly it's like these are the things that i think about all the time when I was developing how to darse somebody when I am on bottom turtle and they're above me. Whoa. Yeah. It is, the, it is the hardest position to shoot the move from. Now, let me tell you why this was like the great white buffalo for me. Mm-hmm. Right? You cannot be farther from a move when the things you need for that move are behind you mm-hmm. and you have weight on the things you need to do the move. <laughs> I need my arms to be able to do the move and my weight is on my arms and they're facing the dirt. Mm. They're behind me with weight on me. I still make the move work. Like, and how it happens is, oh, and, and that video is actually shared on the, um, the Pedro Sauer Association website. Ooh. But what's cool is when I was coming up with that move, I didn't do it at the gym. I wasn't at the academy rolling around and this move just accidentally came out of the air. I'm legitimately getting ready for a day where I'm going off to do some non-jujitsu related stuff, but I'm thinking about jujitsu, I'm brushing my teeth, and then I just had this eureka moment of how to get an angle. And next thing you know, I'm like, I gotta write this down because I'll friggin' forget it. Mm -hmm. And so I leave the bathroom, I write it down, and then it was days before I would actually even try the move, and it worked. And it was like, man, you can do so much with your subconscious and you don't even realize it. So think about it from just an everyday life perspective. You lose your keys. You're searching everywhere for your keys. You can't find your keys. You finally hit F it and you're like, you know what? There's other things I need. So now your, your frontal lobe and your, your brain is thinking like, okay, I am done searching for keys. Now I'm searching for something else. What you don't realize is in the recesses of your brain, it is still working out that puzzle of where you put your keys. Mm. And so you go to search for something else. And the second you switch it off, you hit that magical moment where you're like, oh yeah, that's right. I remember where I put my keys. (laughs) And we have that happen to us. And we forget that this is how it is with jujitsu sometimes where it's like, you're thinking about a problem so hard and so long until you eventually say, ah, forget it. But you didn't. Mm. You're still working it out in your head. And then you go and you do something else and then you come back to the move and you're like, oh, this is so much easier now that I'm a purple belt or a blue belt. Mm -hmm. What you don't realize is while you were walking around the house looking for your keys, your eyes are still taking in information Mm -hmm. and you're looking for something else. (laughs) And then eventually your brain is like, hey, idiot, we were hitting the light on on this thing. Mm -hmm. You passed it. Well, as you're like a white belt, you see a move, you're like, I don't get it then you're a blue belt. Your eyes are open the whole time just receiving information. You've worked out how to do that move. Now that you finally revisit it, you're like, oh, this makes perfect sense. Yeah. Happens all the time. And there's a killer study that actually relates to that about um, mice uh, running mazes. And they were able to show that when the mice were were to go to sleep after doing the maze, that their brains would um, 
would reiterate the the maze like thousands of times overnight as if it was hyperactive and they're able to use that using like i think it's mri scans to see the brain activity and it was just indicating that we as humans our subconscious goes to work when we go to sleep, reiterating things thousands of times over for the learning process. That's so cool. So now use it for projection. Mm -hmm. um, when people see any of my jujitsu matches from the last half decade or uh, maybe even, I don't know, I think for me the turning point was 2012. But um, so over half a decade, under uh, under 10 years. And anytime in that period when people watch me grapple, and obviously as a prolific um, competitor with hundreds and hundreds of matches, it's like, oh man, you're so calm when you go out there. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't mean that I don't get nervous before I go out there. <laughs> I still get nervous before every match. Nerves are a human, are a bodily function, <laughs> right? Like fight or flight is still hardwired into us. Our, our abdominal muscles contract because when you think about deer, you can have fight, flight, or freeze. Mm -hmm. If they see something that they think they can scare away, they will rear up, kick, or buck, or you know, hit it with their antlers. Mm -hmm. They were ready to fight. If they are not, their stomach will contract, they will empty their bowels, drop scat, and lighten their load so they can run faster, mm -hmm. right? If they're caught in headlights, and they're like, what do I do? They freeze, right? Well, I've seen competitors on the side of the mat try to psych themselves up to get to fight mode. I've seen people that are too elevated trying to breathe and calm themselves down. And I've seen people in the heat of the moment like fail to do a move that their coach is screaming out for them to do. And they're like, I didn't hear you. I froze. And it's like, these are absolutely possible things. Mm -hmm. Now, how can you get past that sooner, even if you don't have hundreds and hundreds of matches? I'll tell you what I did. Projection. I would go through every possible outcome of a match tens, 20, 30, 40, hundreds of times before the match even took place. Mm -hmm. Arm drag, get to the back, take him down, top, choke. Cool. Now take one step away from that and make it terribly, terribly worse. <laughs> right? And you think about every outcome. Try your arm drag fails try it again fails you know like <laughs> yeah. think of every outcome imaginable and do it to death mm -hmm. so now you've mentally lost or won mm -hmm. tons of times before you ever even stepped in the match so when i tell people especially when i would cut weight in the sauna first off don't don't do what i do <laughs> right because i would spend an hour in the sauna and i would do despicable things like take a wet towel and put it over the thermostat so it wouldn't read oh, so that yeah. you can get the heat up oh and then i plug the door <laughs> yeah and then it, yeah i gotta so. do that in my sauna at the gym just because i like it hotter they always have it kind of cool yeah i mean i would get it up to uh, 90 percent humidity at 180 oh yeah dang yeah we did dumb stuff now, we would bring stationary bikes in and then wear your sweatsuit get on the stationary bike in the sauna Oh my gosh. But you ever pass out? Never in the sauna. Oh, that's Thank good. God. But you know, we would do that with buddy system anyway. But mm -hmm. when I would do the sauna on my own and like, um, my family back out East, they own, um, an infrared sauna, which mm -hmm. is way cooler for many reasons because it just, it's not just heat making you sweat. It's actually doing muscle recovery too, because Ooh. it penetrates into the deep tissue of your muscles. Mm -hmm. So anyway, infrared saunas are my jam. But when I would be in there for like 55 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half, 
That's a long time, yeah. right? Ooh. How do you sit through that boredom? You know what? Playing. No, I'm doing tens of thousands of matches in my head. Mm. If I have an opponent that I was getting, like Will Martinez, mm-hmm. I just had a um, super fight with him for a fight to win pro in um, Philadelphia. And by the way, this guy is a hero of mine. <laughs> and my little protege, who is my number one student, the move that she is most known for is a move I learned from one of his seminars that I took like two, three, two years ago. So Will Martinez, and you know, he's still actively fighting Mm -hmm. and he's just, he's incredible. And the Martinez brothers Academy is, is stellar and can't say enough good things. But when I was prepping for the match, um, my biggest problem was myself. I'm taking a match that's at 165 pounds and I walk around at 198 at that time. And so now my weight cut's going to be merciless on me. And I remember sitting in on the, on the sauna and just going over everything I know from all the research I've done, all the shark tanks where I've had other black belts, you know, trying to emulate his game and just playing through in my head how I would do it. And I must have lost to Will Martinez a thousand times in that hour. But I beat him a thousand times too. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you go out on the big stage and you're not nervous anymore. And then you go out there and it was like, I remember he hit this really slick foot sweep on me mm-hmm. um, that pretty much won him the match because uh, it went to decision and they gave him the decision victory. And uh, so even though he hits a foot sweep, he gets the neon belly. I defend the neon belly really quick and I get to guard and the rest of the match is from my guard, me attacking him. Mm-hmm submissions aren't that valuable Mm. the position is more valuable so he wins the match but um anyway still tons and tons of respect to will and he did everything right but i remember being in the sauna and thinking like nothing's gonna surprise me and when he hit that foot sweep as i'm being swept i'm like i already knew this was gonna happen Mm -hmm. because i've had this vision in my head what am i gonna do to recover Instead of freaking out because I just got taken down, he puts me in the neon belly. The neon belly happened for all of two seconds. Mm. He didn't even have a chance to capitalize on it because I had already run the script in my head what to do if this happens. Mm. So not enough people do projection. And even if it's just like an in-house role, like you know you're going to roll with your number one training partner, before you even roll with them again, even if you know their game, map it out in your head. And that that little bit of projection is going to go a long way towards making you have pathways to success and you'll do much better the next time you grapple them. And I feel like the top people in the sport are doing that, (laughs) but it's just one of those unspoken um, training devices that we don't share enough anyway. And what do you think that makes people stagnate? as um you know white to purple belts in jujitsu i think the easiest thing to get caught up in is you had a move or two from any given position that worked for you against people of your belt rank and then you only do that and you don't continue to to test yourself in areas where you're not good Mm -hmm. and you encounter a training partner who then branched off and when they come back, they start to beat up on you a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then you then you start getting really judgmental and self-deprecating. And you're like, what did I do? Why am I not good? And you're not realizing it. It's not that you're not good. It's that you were good in this one field mm-hmm. and you just gravitated towards that. And here went this other person who is probably a peer who branched out. 
And so you can actually see their growth. Mm -hmm. And so rather than saying, man, they grew in this new area, we turn it back to ourselves as I'm not growing. Mm. And it's like, no, you're just getting different kinds of reps on the same move, which is growing the move. But to think of it like this, if we were playing in a sandbox and only using your hands and the, the sand is perfectly flat to start, if I just say, take your one hand, scoop a hole, pretty easy, right? Yeah. Now fill it pretty easy, right? Mm -hmm. Just push the sand back in. Now, if I said, take two hands and push sand into a mound, okay? Mm -hmm. Now only using one hand, make the mound bigger. And you take a scoop of sand and you dump it on top. Mm -hmm. Where's most of the sand going to end up? It's going to end up on the sides. Yeah. And did it get much taller? No, it got wider. So when you come into your class and you only want to improve upon an existing move that you're already good at, you use two hands to make the mound. Mm -hmm. And now every time you come in, you're trying to put one handful of sand on top every day. And it's getting one grain of sand taller, but it's not a crazy improvement. Mm -hmm. It is improvement, but it's just minuscule. Mm -hmm. So you don't see the growth. Meanwhile, that other guy, he had a bunch of holes and he plugged one. How much easier was it to plug that hole? So much easier. That's why you see that person's growth. <sighs> so what we should be doing when we stagnate is we should say, where am I not better mm -hmm. and do that? Because mm -hmm. first off, you'll see success faster plugging that hole. Mm -hmm. So let's say you know zero leg locks. Mm -hmm. Remember the day you learned your first leg lock? Mm -hmm. It was like an epiphany. Yeah. Like I said, show an armbar to a karate guy. You'll blow their mind. But if you're only familiar with a set of moves and that's all you continually do, you're not growing. So like for me, I know that the Barambolo exists, that it's used and that lots of people have great success with it. I have never once decided that I want to do the Barambolo, mm -hmm. but I have done variations of it, mm. like the baby bolo. And, you know, I've done other other inversions to get to someone's back, like uh, the kiss of the dragon underneath somebody. I've done all that stuff too, but like true Baron Bolo never did it, but I've had it done to me so many times that I at least understand the objective and what their intent is behind doing the move. Mm -hmm. So now from a defensive point of view, I could shut it down. Mm. One of the first things I wanted to do when I moved to Bellingham was learn from Jeff Shaw, how he does his <laughs> Baron Bolo. Cause yeah. his is really freaking nasty. <laughs> so why wouldn't I want to grow and fill that hole? rather than just darse everybody, mm -hmm. right? Makes no sense. So if you use that sandbox analogy, you will not stagnate. Because even though, yes, by, by taking that handful of sand, you're growing that little, that, that move that you're good at a little bit, it will feel like it's not growing. Mm -hmm. But if you fill your holes, you'll grow much faster, mm -hmm. right? So that's, that's my tip for, for getting through that. The other thing is cross train. Mm -hmm. If you cross train, you're going to see different looks on the same moves and that's a different type of hole. And the other thing, which is probably third to cross training is go to a seminar. Mm -hmm. um, nothing says growth, like finding an expert in a field, even if it's a field you feel confident in and learning from them. Because if you went to somebody who specialized in the Dars, for example, like I did, like I sought out Ryan Hall and Jeff Glover, mm -hmm. right? And I trained with those guys a lot for a short period of time. And then throughout the years, I've still managed to keep in touch with Ryan and Jeff. But now it's funny. Like I remember the last time I got on um, one of Jeff's uh, Facebook live videos, he was there. Um, 
he was with uh, Pete the Greek, and <laughs> they're they're doing some diabolical things to some uh, cannabis. Ooh. And so, you know, they're having a good old time. And I just jump on to say, like, what's up to a guy I respect? I'm, and I'm just <clears> like, Jeff, what's up, man? And, you know, he just happened to be on at that point reading the comments. And he's like, oh, my God, Dave Porter, what's up, Darce Master? <laughs> and it's just cool because here's a guy who paved the way for me to do the weird stuff that I'm now doing. Mm -hmm. And for him to even just say that I'm the Darce master. <laughs> and then in, a, in another thread, I can't even remember what the, what the thread was, but I chimed in and then he chimed in afterwards. You should be learning from Dave. Oh. And then he said it at a seminar he did at 50, 50 Ryan Hall's gym. Mm -hmm. um, we were taking a seminar and he was trying to not show Darce jokes. He was doing deep half, mm -hmm. right? And by the way, Glover's deep half is just absurdly good. And even he's changed it in my time period wow. of knowing him. Like he used to do it one way, now he does it a different way, and it's mm -hmm. it's wild. But and I did that today too. <laughs> but, <laughs> but um, just just going back to that that seminar, I remember someone was saying, "Hey, I got a Dars question." And he's like, he looks around the room and he looks straight at me. He's like, "Ask him." <laughs> and it's just cool that like there's this this mutual respect, mm -hmm. like. I still think of him as the godfather of the move. Like he's the reason why I'm doing it the way I'm doing it. And a lot of the reasons for it, but he can respect that it's got to involved. It's got to evolve and it has. And so he looks at me as like the guy who can carry that torch to the next guy. And I'm looking at some of my students as potential candidates for growing it past what I do, mm -hmm. because my method is only going to be so good for so long. Mm -hmm. And then the shelf life is not as as long as we think mm -hmm. much of the same way that the guy's doing jujitsu in the 60s and 70s before bringing it to america it was different and yeah. now it's it keeps growing every every couple of years just explosive growth and with that said um what stimulates you and fulfills you from participating in jujitsu is it competition learning these techniques or um so I love grappling mm -hmm. as a, as a fun recreational thing. Mm -hmm. And eventually you get to a point where you can actually hit a move in a grapple at your gym. And that's a really rewarding experience. It's like solving a puzzle, right? Except the puzzle is trying to beat you up. <laughs> so then you're trying to develop new moves and then you get to this point where you're good enough to start instructing others and they don't want somebody instructing them who can't prove the move works. So how do you prove the move works? Because when we're in the, when we're in the gym, even on days where you do hard training, hard training usually isn't 100% balls to the wall. Someone's probably going to be bleeding by the end of this, mm -hmm. right? Like, and let's be real, not all tournaments end that way, but some do. Oh yeah. And your, your, your Monday, Wednesday, Friday crowd at the gym should probably not be doing that. Right. But if you have an actual comp class training, that's probably happening, right? Mm -hmm. People are just going after it. And what happens in those scenarios are, you know, sometimes you pop a knee, pop an elbow, you know, because it's, it's serious. There's heightened stakes. What I would do is I would use my tournament knowledge and my success going up against 100% resistance as a filter. Anything that's working in those matches will work in the gym. And now I can unequivocally say this move will work, mm. right? And not just because I got it on a blue belt, mm -hmm. not just because I, you know, I happen to be 
a sandbagging purple belt beating a non-sandbagging purple belt. I mean, I am a black belt training against some of the best guys in the world and getting these moves to work. We can trust that you as a whoever the rank will get this move to work. Like I, I use my tournament, uh, my tournament knowledge to my advantage all the time. And this isn't like one of those self pat on the back things where I go, all right, guys, as homework, watch my match against insert grappler's name. What I'm doing is I'm saying here is it in live action with 100% resistance mm-hmm. at the speed you need to accomplish it at. Mm. And now you have something to look at because I can't do that with a paying customer at the gym. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. So sometimes you get that guy who will, what if you to death, mm-hmm. like, but coach, what if, uh, what if, but, uh, and it's like, listen, dude, that other guy was a black belt. <laughs> if he didn't have the, what if you think you're going to, what if, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, come on. So <laughs> I, I love using that as, as the, as the, the baseline and for me, the most enriching part of it is that problem-solving aspect. And now that I'm no longer competing, the big thing is making the next version of me, mm-hmm. right? Proliferating the art by making more well-versed grapplers. Mm. And when I'm looking to them and I'm pouring out all of this uh, hard-earned information that I've gleaned from all of my travels and seminars I've taken, it's like every minute of my time on the mat is all of those things pressed behind it like gunpowder behind a bullet, mm-hmm. right? So now I can shoot farther and faster because I have so much propellant behind me with all this experience. Mm-hmm. And I give it all to my students and that is enriching in and of itself. But when I see them doing it, like just giving it to them is enriching. But when I see them do it, I know that the future is is established and my legacy is set. Mm. Like there are people that can do these moves without me coaching them onto it. Mm-hmm. They know how to do it. And I have given to the next generation and that's awesome. And that gives you like a feeling of gratification, sense yeah. of belonging community, which is integral. I mean, what you look at any sport and you look at any pursuit and those things are integral to one degree or another, yeah. right? Belonging even to a corporation or religion, for instance, not that corporations fulfill that need most of the time, no. but I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Cause I mean, from the, and I come from like the layman's perspective to where if you look at like a mountaineer, um, people would mostly think, okay, everyone wants to eventually just climb Everest. That's the whole point of being a mountaineer is climb the biggest mountain, you know, in the world and feel like a badass or someone who's doing jujitsu. It's like to be the number one grappler in the world. That's, that is that thing that you just, that you strive for. That's it. Um, powerlifting to be able to break records like, um, half Thor Bjornsson or whatever. And it's way more than that. As you dig into these pursuits, it's not to just be, you know, number one, but it's, to have the gratification of progressing at something and life in and of itself. Like, you know, I am trying to be a good person who is a good dad to my son and to be able to um, make my bills right and, and live. I need simulated experiences outside of that, whether, you know, whether that is mountaineering or jujitsu to be able to simulate that, implement that and build my character and give it to me because I haven't seen someone who is able to just have that in our relationship, right? Like just having family in, in and of itself and not having any shared hobbies within that family or just in your life. 
you don't really learn more of how to be an effective and loving community member or, or to contribute or to feel like you belong or to speak out. But you have to take on some sort of pursuit to teach you those things and whether it's, you know, something as abstract as like religion, right, or a sport or an art. And it's through that process that we learn about ourselves, because I'm sure like whatever gets your rocks off in jujitsu, right, um, is the same for someone who is a runner, not on the surface, but deep with inside of you. We're, we're, we're accomplishing different ends mm -hmm. and the way in which we do it is totally different, but the fulfillment is there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And for me, when I see um, like my little protege, when I see her hitting a move, nothing is better in the world to me than that yeah. because it's not you didn't need to actually pilot this form mm -hmm. right you didn't need to be five foot ten 180 pounds of dave to do the move you could be five foot four 102 pounds and do the move oh yeah and like seeing her do anything that i do um it, it just it transcends what other people think of, right? Mm -hmm. So when I say size doesn't matter until it does, mm -hmm. like what I think is incredible is I've seen her grapple with people much bigger than her and come out of it none the worse for wear because she understands what it takes to come out of it surviving. Yeah. But on top of that, she threatens them and she's doing all of this with a huge smile on her face. <laughs> and it's like, that is a different kind of win, mm -hmm. right? It's like, you didn't get to me. <laughs> right yeah. so um yeah it, it it just so much so much joy is brought to my life by by teaching the art and i love that just in my short time of seeing what jeff has done with the program in bellingham mm -hmm. like i came out in august um to i was on like a short reprieve then for mm -hmm. my knee that i ultimately needed more work on but it came out in August originally and I saw the program and he had a bunch of people on the mats that very first class. And I was there and it felt good to be like at ground zero mm -hmm. and then to watch and know that there is attrition and people will wash out. Mm -hmm. But to see not only that the program has grown um, in size, it's grown in skill and mm -hmm. that just since August, there have now been blue belt promotions mm. and there are people that are moving forward and taking steps in the right direction. And that's why I have no problem coming into town, helping out Jeff and just being like an added set of eyes from an expert point of view that can mm -hmm. be like, yeah, so let's maybe function here differently with this. And I get, I get to mentor a good buddy of mine and help him grow the program. And the program is just blowing up, man. Yeah. And so I would not, um, I would not hesitate to say that before too long, you're going to see a, a lot coming out of Bellingham mm -hmm. BJJ. Oh yeah. And Bellingham BJJ is already the premier spot in that region. Although there are other clubs right mm -hmm. nearby and, and different schools. I mean, just having Jeff alone is, you know, head and shoulders above any other place in that area. Oh yeah. And now that I'm here, it's like, <laughs> it's like swatting a fly with a nuke, right? Yeah, exactly. So we, we've got we've got a lot to offer, and we're going to continue to improve. And um, before too long, you'll hear about you know women's only classes. You'll mm -hmm. hear about self defense classes. You'll hear about competition classes. Oh, okay. You'll hear about um, a, a larger nogi program. Um, once we feel 
and by we, I mean Jeff and I, once mm-hmm. we feel like the student population here is ready to, we'll start sending people to bigger events. Mm-hmm. Um, we had four competitors at the revolution Ooh. that just happened not too long ago. Every single person got at least a win. Mm-hmm. And this is, you know, mostly white belts. Yeah. Um, Jess Munter, who is a, a para athlete, mm-hmm. as you know, had a match against an able-bodied competitor of her same rank and still won via submission. Oh, what? Yeah. Whoa. And I mean, these are things like Jeff and I can't claim success for Jess because mm-hmm. Jess did train elsewhere. Yeah. But while she's under our care and going to school at, at, at Western Washington, mm-hmm. it's good to see even her improving and having these eureka moments, maybe not weekly, but at least monthly, mm-hmm. where she's taking a little jump up every time in skill level. So imagine, you know, what's going to happen six months from now with Belling and BGJ? What's going to happen a year from now? I think that Jeff's vision is going to be actualized much sooner than he thinks. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, you have somebody that is that enthusiastic about their passion. Mm -hmm. It spills onto the mats. Oh yes, it does. And when he teaches, I, even if I know the material, I'm watching it like Pavlov's dog watches a steak. (laughs) I'm just like, man, this is so, this is so appetizing Mm -hmm. because the person really loves it. Yeah. And so, uh, obviously Jeff and I have a lot of differences, not just in, um, physical structure, Mm -hmm. but in teaching practices. Um, we're trying not to get typecast as good cop, bad cop Mm -hmm. because, you know, I'm very, very direct. And when I tell people things, it's like emphatically, mm-hmm. like point blank, this is this. Mm-hmm. Not to the point of absolutes, absolutes like always and never, mm-hmm. but I do say things like high percentage, low percentage, not worth your time, or, you know, this is something that you should be thinking of. And when I do it, I'm I'm not trying to joke around a lot, mm-hmm. especially when it concerns a mechanic that involves like a submission. Mm-hmm. And because of it, you know, I put a lot of, I put a lot of emphasis on health first mm-hmm. and I don't want to develop a bunch of people that just swing around violently and will accidentally send someone to the ER. Yeah. Um, this is controlled chaos. So when I make students learn a, a technique, I put just enough emphasis on the control aspect that they, they know where I'm coming from and they get it. Yeah. So now I'm in a, I'm in a weird capacity as, Oh, well, Jeff's the one who cracks all the jokes and is always <laughs> smiling and always doing this. And it's like, I smile after class, <laughs> you know, or I smile at Jeff, but I, I don't want to be that. Uh, I don't want to have it good cop, bad cop. I mm-hmm. think it's, uh, it, plus Jeff can be a bad cop. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> uh, but I, I think, um, especially for any of my students that were back out East, mm-hmm. you know, I make a lot of jokes with them, mm. but that took time to build right they they came up through a system with me for years mm-hmm. and then once they started getting into like i would have an advanced nogi class the people that were in that class they had been around the block for a minute so mm-hmm. that's where i can let my hair down whereas with you know this program it's 85 to 90 percent white belts mm-hmm. and so as you're getting them familiarized with what they need to be doing, you don't have time for jokes. Yeah. You know? Jeff's wife, Betsy O'Donovan, mm-hmm. who is a near and dear friend of mine as well. Um, I, I love them both equally. She would tell me about her father, who was also a Marine like I was, but stayed in much longer and was an officer. Mm-hmm. Um, she'll tell me about John, her father, 
giving her advice on the negative learning locker. When you see something from a leadership point of view or an instructing way, whenever that person in some capacity teaches you something or shows you something that you don't vibe well with, you store this in your head in this negative learning locker. Mm -hmm. And now you know as an instructor eventually or a person who might share this craft or this tool, mm -hmm. that's not how you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. Right? So we're learning either way. Yes. So when you say who you learn from the best, that's great. Mm -hmm. But even if you went to a class that is just terrible, mm -hmm. you're going to have a lot to take away from that mm -hmm. because you're going to be like, I would never show it that way. <laughs> yeah. I would never do it. And, and that's great in and of itself, right? Mm -hmm. Because the same way that there's tens of thousands of permutations of ways to do moves mm -hmm. and we don't have all the time in the world to do them all. So we have to either specialize or be a jack of all trades. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of exclusion, right? Mm -hmm. So because of the, the principle behind exclusion, we just figure out the things that we're not going to put time into. Learning by omission. Yeah. Yeah. And this negative learning locker becomes super valuable. Mm -hmm. These are the things you're not going to do. <laughs> it, it's all value. So um, one of the things that I definitely want to make sure I get across is that even when I'm taking a class on a subject, like I am not an Oma Plata fan mm -hmm. in the sense of I have taking the classes from the class on it from multiple sources mm -hmm. who are all very passionate and skillful with the move. Then we have to remember that not every body's hype fits every movement. Mm -hmm. And for me, just because of my hip to spine to whatever ratio mm -hmm. and the way in which I turn, I can do a lot of relatively like beautiful movements, but my omoplata movement is not the greatest. Mm. So the one time I've decided like, okay, I'm going to just go all in on this. I went to tons of seminars on it, took resources from all different points of whether it was digital download or visual books, just like right in front of me, like, like, man, I am struggling with this move. Mm -hmm. I still go to every single omoplata class I can, and I'm still waiting for that eureka moment. But it's like, man, this is a move that I've done one time in competition mm -hmm. that I know to, to great lengths that I am not going to have a high level of success with. And every so often I will teach an omoplata class mm -hmm. and people are like, man, you taught a great class. I love that. <laughs> and I'm like, awesome. I'm so glad you love it. As I, I like, don't blink and make, you know, yeah. that look of, I'm glad you like it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because it's not my job to love every move, mm -hmm. but it is my job to give a fulfilling class and have knowledge of the, of the art. Mm -hmm. So when I take a class on the move, even if it's not working for me, I'm listening to every detail that the instructor gives and their key points. And I want to make sure that I write those down. And then when I have to teach it, I can relay those points. Mm. So because it could be a path to ignorance otherwise, it right? It can be. So you got to be very careful and take your personal beliefs out of it so that you're not shoving the things that don't work for you into the negative learning locker. Mm -hmm. Instead, you're putting bad experiences in there. Not, you don't like this move. Mm -hmm. It goes in there. Because one day someone's going to ask you for that thing and you're not going to have that resource because you, you shunned it early and you just locked it off, mm. right? I would much rather know the inner workings of that move and be able to teach it and either still fail it on my own or just not like it and go for different things mm -hmm. than have somebody ask me and be like, 
yeah, that move is crap. I'm never going to do it. And now that person misses out on something that could have worked for them. Yes. And I would almost want to zoom out with that and say that that's applicable to all of life, right? To where you might have certain opinions or beliefs. Oh God. Yeah. Now we're getting deep. <laughs> yeah. And this is, and this is the thing, like, I don't have problems with, I don't have problems with organized religions as mm -hmm. a whole. When I have a problem is when somebody else tries to tell me what I should do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like, cool, you do you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? And so I'm, I'm the exact opposite when I'm on the mat where I tell people for their safety's sake what they shouldn't do. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, even if it's movements that I don't particularly like, mm -hmm. I need to at least let my students have the option of choosing whether they like it. Mm, yeah. And that's on them to pick it up or drop it. Mm -hmm. And the omoplata just happens to be applicable to this conversation for me. Yeah. But I know a lot of other people have it in different ways. Um, my good buddy from North Carolina, who's a, a, an even better friend to our, our mutual friend, Jeff Shaw, mm -hmm. this guy, uh, Jake Whitfield, mm -hmm. he's a black belt, uh, under Hoist Gracie. He's been a black belt for like seven years or so now. Um, great guy. He loves making jokes about, um, uh, 10th planet, practitioners as a whole mm -hmm. because as a whole we both know that's a group of clowns right <laughs> and they live up to it and they have like um uh geo martin not geo uh richie maybe it was richie but like clown themed crap oh like, yeah yeah richie does definitely richie. yeah the and freak it, show and the yeah, carnival theme freak show and everything's mm -hmm. carnival themed and it's like they own it they mm -hmm. own the weird it's like if you go down to portland right mm -hmm. they just own it yeah. they just own the weird and it's not gonna, it's not gonna, it's not gonna vibe with everybody, but when it does, it does. And mm -hmm. that's cool, man. Like I know some people that hate all white policies, bowing into old dead people on walls <laughs> yeah. and like what we would consider like traditional BJJ. Mm -hmm. And it's weird to say traditional BJJ cause it's like what, 80 years old. Yeah. But you know, there's just a different culture. And for me, it's like, dude, I don't care whether it's gi, no gi. I, I don't require people to turn away from me when they're turn, tying their belt knot. Mm -hmm. I don't want people, um, I don't want people, and mind you, like I've got tattoos on my back mm -hmm. and one of the tattoos is of Pedro Sauer, my instructor, and oh, another wow. tattoo is of Elio Gracie in different forms of his life. Wow. I can appreciate Elio Gracie for what he did for the art, but mm -hmm. still look at him and say he was a terrible father. Yes. Right? Like idol worship is terrible. Mm-hmm. Got to be careful with that. I am not going to involve my student base in a form of like new age witchcraft where mm -hmm. it's like, we look at these people as some kind of like patron saints and we worship them. And like, we do these weird rituals around them where it's like, you can't tie your belt while facing the portrait of Elio. Or, yeah. And you know, it's like, dude, what does Elio care right now about whether your belt is being tied in front of a picture of him? Exactly. I don't, I don't see the, the, um, the, the need for it or the use of it in, from my perspective in my environment. Yeah. And, um, you even see that though, the, the idolization, I think that's a big thing is to be able to hold that in separation, just like the, you know, with the move, right. Where it's like, I may not have fun or yeah. want to engage in doing the own plotter, but I will listen. Yeah. Um, and it's the same. We even look at like Martin Luther, uh, Martin Luther King, right. 
people would idolize him. He's a great man for everything that he did. And I completely agree with that. I'm not a great person in general. I yeah. mean, he's done a lot of plagiarism. There, he'd have like, not that there's anything wrong with this, but he'd have wild sex orgies. Um, yeah. It, well, he did like a, a variety of things that are out of character, but yeah. that's, that's humanity. And that's when yeah. if you idolize someone then you kind of get into like yeah. dangerous grounds. I, I'm not saying I don't care that Gandhi cheated on his wife. <laughs> yes. But what I'm saying is he had a great cause that we can like in spite of his shortcomings as a human. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, that's a big prominent piece with this um, Chinese uh, saying that goes, no household in the world can hang a sign out front that reads no problems here. Mm. <laughs> I like that. We all have our stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what I think is like, um, my little protege, she looks up to me like I am the greatest human who ever lived and the exact opposite, right? Mm -hmm. I am a terrible human being that has some good characteristics. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I know I'm a terrible human being because good human beings don't do half of the things I've done in my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so this isn't like, um, this isn't an admission of guilt, but it's like, I've had to steal. Mm -hmm. I've had to, um, I've had to hurt people to the point of killing people. Mm -hmm. I've had to do some things that normal human beings shouldn't ever have to do. Mm -hmm. Right. And notice I didn't say murder. Yes. Right. Like when I was in the military, I was in the infantry, you're doing your job and it was on the field of battle. Mm -hmm. And I followed the rules of war and the law of land warfare. And I'd made sure I only shot my weapon in those circumstances. Mm -hmm. But these are still not things that would make me go to sleep at night thinking, you know what? I did good. Yeah. Yeah. I, and so, you know, I've cheated on girlfriends in the past. Mm -hmm. I've done all kinds of other things, but when someone sees me on the mat and you know, I care about your, your progression and I do this and I'm very passionate about it, it would be very easy to get spun up in that and be like, well, Dave's just a great guy. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, 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 no. I'm a great teacher of martial arts. Yes. Yes. Right. Um, so I can look at Elio Gracie and be like, man, he was a great martial artist and a terrible businessman and father. Mm -hmm. I can look at Pedro Sauer and, and without putting a filter in it, still say to you, he is probably one of the greatest human beings I've ever met. Mm -hmm. He is just one of those people where it's like, if you told me you worship that guy, I wouldn't have a problem with it mm -hmm. because Although he will tell you where his faults are. I look at them and I'm like, man, that's your fault. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Like, come on, man. You got to bring a little bit more to the table. Than that. <laughs> exactly. like, he's just bring such a heat. good dude. And he even has a saying that bothers me to this day from just like a, a wiring perspective where he's friends with his ex-wife's husband. And Ooh, I know yeah. it's interesting, yeah, right? Yeah. But he's like, you know what? If you think you're my enemy, you need to try harder. Cause I don't think I have enemies. <laughs> and it's like, it's that weird thing where you perceive them to be something. We make them that thing. Mm -hmm. And because he doesn't perceive anybody to be his enemy, even if you're talking crap about him, mm -hmm. because he doesn't perceive it that way, it rolls off his back. And it's this weird thing where he's just like, Oh yeah, you know, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like, man, I can't live like that. The <laughs> New Yorker in me wants to just like puff up and like get after it. Yeah. And it's like, Oh, what he said, what we're, we're, go we're going, we're going. Right? Yeah. But you know, I don't confuse those things and I don't also think that it's necessary to pay homage past the point of respect for what they did in the art mm -hmm. and therefore like all the little ritualistic things don't sit well with me because that's taking it to a different level yeah. and now you're almost superseding 
the human, mm-hmm. right? Like they were human and they did an achievement, right? If, if that's the case, I'm hanging a picture of Nikola Tesla on the wall. <laughs> yes. Like I'm going to put somebody who did like true magic, <laughs> yeah. right? Like you, like I, I, that's the person I'm going to put on the yeah, wall. You got a gun that shoots lightning. Like, <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't know. Like if it's just a matter of human achievement, there have been some incredible humans on this mm-hmm. planet earth, but why don't we like, Oh, you know, if you have to fix your tie clasp, you can't face Nikola Tesla when you do it. <laughs> yeah. Like that just seems awkward. Right. Yeah. But somehow they fly in martial arts and martial arts. I don't want it to become a cult. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think Eddie would agree with me. And by Eddie, I mean, I mean the Eddie, Eddie Bravo. I think he would agree with me when he says like, he doesn't want to be worshiped. Mm-hmm. He understands like he veered way off the beaten way off the beaten path when he came up with his systems, but only a fool would look at those systems and say it's garbage Mm. because, and, and this is going back to my buddy, Jake Whitfield, Mm -hmm. who once again is a hoist Gracie traditional dude. Even he can appreciate curriculum Mm -hmm. and systems. I don't care if you don't know what a DPO is or like crackhead control or any mm-hmm. like, like the twister, right? Like mm-hmm. pick, pick a move, right? I don't care if you don't like the moves. You can like the system. Mm-hmm. You could boil it down and be like, this is a person who mapped this out and had a flow chart. And these things work within this system and they're, and they're great. And they're mm-hmm. tried and tested. You don't have to like Eddie's belief in flat earth and chemtrails and all the crazy stuff. And you could just be like, listen, man, Eddie's a brilliant jujitsu dude mm-hmm. who is just crazy. Mm-hmm. Even Joe Rogan. It's like, man, Joe Rogan, he, man, he makes some really great points, man. Joe is just Looney tunes. <laughs> yeah. Like it's fine. <laughs> yeah. I went to his comedy stand up, and he made fun of himself. Mm-hmm. And Joe is a spectacular example of a guy who, who understands he's a comedian. Mm-hmm. He makes jokes. He makes inappropriate jokes. He's not a good dude. Yeah. But man, does he know a thing about making a joke? Mm-hmm. It's like we can appreciate a person for their specialty without having to make that um, blanket over all of their faults. Mm-hmm. And man, I love every scar on my body. I love every time I got bad tattoo ink. <laughs> yeah. I love every time I've done something stupid and it didn't pay off. And it's like, cool, won't do that again. <laughs> because life is a... a is an accumulation of all of your experiences mm-hmm. and the same way that in the Avengers infinity war movie in the very mm-hmm. opening scene with Thanos and Loki and Loki is like, if you're going back to earth, might I suggest my expertise? <laughs> and Thanos is like, if you consider failures experience and Loki's response was brilliant. And to the point experience is experience. Mm. And it was like this such a profound moment that gets glossed over in the greater aspects of the movie because of the visuals and the story. But if you look back at it, it's like, damn, Loki literally had the best line in the whole movie. Experience is experience. experience. And so that goes back to the negative learning locker. That goes back into, you know, what you should perfect, whether it be that handful of sand on something that's already up or filling in those holes. And just understanding that we're that accumulation of all of our experiences. And if you do that, you're going to have a good time. Mm-hmm. And. That's something to be said too for when you pursue a given discipline, like I said before, is like it's a simulation to build your character, right? Mm-hmm. When you pursue any discipline, because we we do make you know horrible choices and great choices. Um, we're our worst enemy and our best friend, right? But when you have something like jujitsu, 
or running or painting, someone could, you could look at yourself from almost an objective point of view, or at least closer to objective and say, Hey, you know, I might drink too much or I, I might, you know, I might've cheated on my mm-hmm. ex and just, I just have real trouble holding down relationships, but I'm getting better at this. Yeah. I do think that one of the best aspects of training in a, um, in, in an academy, like, like the one that Jeff and I are now are building is the social aspects. Mm-hmm. Once you understand that it's not okay for me to wear no shoes into the bathroom, or mm-hmm. let's say I'm in wrestling shoes, wearing wrestling shoes into the bathroom. And then those same wrestling shoes onto the mat, because regardless of whether my skin is durable and I don't get ringworm or staff or any of those things, I'm not trying to give it to you mm-hmm. and understanding that my hygiene and whether I washed my gi before I trained or my brash guard or whatever, making sure that I'm not the guy that's causing other people grief. It's like this, it's this thing that you don't go to work at your whatever job and think, man, I hope I don't cause problems for somebody else. Mm-hmm. But we do have that in jujitsu. And it's it's interesting. It's like I am trying to simulate murder in either pajamas or swimwear. Right. (laughs) And when I get this arm lock, when you tap, it's me saying we have simulated it far enough for you. Mm. And when you don't tap and something bad happens, we no longer simulated it. (laughs) Yes. Right. But the the social aspect of it is you trust me enough to end the simulation with your little uh, somatic component, Mm -hmm. right? The second you take your hand and you symbolize like you're done, you're trusting me with your body Mm. and I let go (laughs) the same thing with all the chokes, right? It's Mm -hmm. like you, if, if, and Joe Rogan said this, like every one of those is a kill. If I choke you and you tap and I don't let go, I can hold you until you die. Mm. Right? So when I, when I put you in these strangleholds and you tap, that's me saying, okay, we've made it to the end of our simulation. And today, no one was David Carradine. <laughs> Too soon? <laughs> nah. All right, cool. But the point remains, like, some people go way too far. Mm-hmm. We want to build a culture where people understand, yes, this is great control. Try to get out. Cool, you couldn't. Now imagine, this is where you're tapping. And now I'm going to let go and show you where I could go. Mm. And here's where it can go. Or in a choke, it's like, cool, you understand you were going out, right? You understand what happens after your, your brain shuts down. It's because it's saying we need to reserve our energy of, of oxygen. So now I keep that going. Mm-hmm. You die. Yeah. And it's like building that social, that social climate of we all trust each other to let go of the moves, to do the moves appropriate. And I give my body to you and you give it to me so that we can simulate these things while also being respectful of the hygiene components and um, listening to the instructor. You're building relationships with your instructor and your training partners. The social benefits are some of the most intangible but important aspects of the art. And that, to me, is the difference between gym culture and an academy. Mm. When I think of a gym, and I say this routinely, I'll, say, I'll differentiate when I'm at a gym or when I'm at an academy. You'll know when you go into a jujitsu gym because it's people working hard mm-hmm. and physically it looks demanding. When you go into an academy, an academy is a place of learning, right? And although you can work hard at an academy, it's not the focus, mm-hmm. right? So when you see a place where 
and I, and I'm and I'm just throwing this out there because mm-hmm. we've all seen it. But when you go into a place and you got a lot of people walking around with their shirts off and they're lifting weights or they're doing some kind of crazy cardio stuff, and it's like that's not jujitsu. Mm-hmm. Like, why are you building that? Like, why aren't you just drilling the move? Right. Mm-hmm. That's a gym. Yeah. That's a gym, right? And like, it's cool if that's what you want. You have to decide as a business owner what culture you want. If you want a gym culture, get ready for all the things that come with gym culture, mm-hmm. right? Oh man, we got a lot of meatheads in here lately. It's like, well, what did you expect? <laughs> yeah. Like you, you made a gym, mm-hmm. right? And then when you see an academy and it's like, man, you can still go hard in your grapples, but it's just a different vibe, mm-hmm. right? And you'll notice at the academy, it's like, and I'm not saying this to be... Um, to be a deterrent to other people that don't want these things, but just understand where that division lies. The onboarding process for any job, Mm -hmm. right? They give you a rundown of the mission and the vision. And then they say, these are how we do our things. And now we're going to train you. Mm -hmm. And now you go through your training and that then you've completed your onboarding. So now not only do you know what your tasks are and what you should be doing, but you're working with this team towards this end goal. At an academy, you're going to get that. You're going to get an onboarding, right? Where it's like, these are our rules. These are the ways in which we do things. Your objective is to do these things. And we're going to promote you up this company chain Mm. through promotions in rank. Mm -hmm. And you're doing this by hitting these things at every step of the way. By the way, this is a private institution. And although you're paying me for goods and services, I can terminate this agreement at any point mm-hmm. if you're not sticking to your end of the bargain. Mm-hmm. And your end of the bargain is once again, respecting the tap, respecting the hygiene, respecting the policies of the academy. So now we've generated a totally different culture, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you'll know right away the difference, right? Because you'll see functionally that they operate on the mats relatively the same. Mm-hmm. But it's really all that superfluous stuff that you you don't necessarily need, but could add that that value off of the mats Mm -hmm. that really makes that difference. And when people just don't care about what's on or off the mats, you're now no longer a gym. Mm -hmm. You're less than that. Mm -hmm. You're basically a glorified club of tough guys that want to hurt each other. Well, isn't an institution or anything for that matter defined more not by what it is, but what it isn't? The, the limitations and constraints that are put on it, right? Man, that's deep. Uh, let me think. Uh, initially, yes, I want to agree with you. Mm-hmm. I think that I think that that sums it up really well. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have to really put it to paper to think of all the things it isn't mm-hmm. being a way of defining something, because I can just just off the top of my head, I can make one exclusion to that rule. Mm-hmm. But that also doesn't mean that it isn't more often or not the case. Yes. Interesting. Let me get back to you on that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's deep, <laughs> but yeah. And, and this is, and this is something that I want people to know. It's like you as a practitioner are entitled to shop around, mm-hmm. not entitled. Let me, let me use better verbiage. Yeah. You are allowed to not get pulled or, or drawn into a contract mm-hmm. that is damnable, right? Like, man, you got to give up your son if you leave this gym. <laughs> yeah. It's like, wow, dude, like, or, you know, something of that extent. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, you should be able to, at the very, very least, say stuff like, hey, um, we're both halves of this. Mm-hmm. We are a business. We're giving you a good and a, or a service, right? But for you, you're going to be this part in this greater machine, mm-hmm. right? And in order for this machine to operate, 
you can't malfunction. Mm -hmm. So if by chance you malfunction, our first step will be to correct the malfunction. Mm -hmm. So if I see someone who's being a, a lunkhead and they're doing something absolutely stupid, depending on how egregious the act, you would correct that action. You would mm -hmm. say, okay, listen, that is actually something we've talked about and we can't do that. That's not how this machine operates. Now you've got to show me that you can operate mm -hmm. and we'll move past this, mm -hmm. right? So then we get past it, right? It malfunctions again in a different way. You make another little correction. It malfunctions in the same way. Now you have to question the part, mm -hmm. right? Maybe it's not a good fit. Now you just replace the part. That makes sense. Right? So this would be from an academy's point of view of you have a student who's continually hurting others. Mm -hmm. It's not a good fit mm -hmm. because that one cog in the machine is damaging the rest of the machine. Mm -hmm. <coughs> and your machine needs to operate. And that's the same because in legal definition, right, a corporation is considered to be a human being in the United States. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, but and you could say that an institution is similar to that of a human being, right? Yeah. To to where collectively they represent this this culture or this idea that get, that gets passed forward. I mean, it, you just look at jujitsu, for instance, right? It's like one human I, set of ideas and principles that are copied from one person to the next. Yeah. And that that as a as a person, if as if you were to do jujitsu, right, and your omoplata game is going south, then you have to be able to evaluate and assess that and and make the proper course corrections in order to. Um, enhance or grow as a person or as an institution. Yeah, and, absolutely. And the institution shapes the individuals who participate in it as much as the institution is the accumulation of all the people who are participating in the institution. I right? agree 100% with all of that. Because that's like school. When people come out of school, we, we're now like embedded within coal. Like you and I went to school and we kind of learned similar things in, in high school and elementary school. And because of that, that has shaped fundamentally who we are and what group we identify with. Mm -hmm. And as we continue that, we build this institution, just like as a person continues learning jujitsu, they build their character. Mm -hmm. And it's something interesting when you decide to create an institution or become a part of one, you're like, well, there's a little thing that we, these are the social principles that we want. And these are also um, how we like to, how we want people, introduce people to learning effectively. This is how we want people to approach, you know, this, mm -hmm. this sport or not even the sport, but themselves. And that in and of itself is unique to the institution, right? Yeah. Whether even if you guys come from, you know, Pedro Sauer. And, yeah, it's fine. And let me use a different institution, for example, mm -hmm. like in the United States Marine Corps, uh, if you happen to sign up for the infantry and you talk to any infantry person, they will tell you the hardest thing was not going to war, but coming back. Mm. So if your institution is doing a disservice to you in terms of training you up, giving you certain skills, telling you when to apply it, but then not giving you an ample understanding of like the, the, the repercussions of those skills, they're doing a disservice to you. Mm -hmm. When I think about teaching jujitsu, I want people to understand that there is a sport component to it that we don't necessarily have to follow. Mm -hmm. There is a self-defense component to it that we don't necessarily have to follow. But should it come to it, I don't think anybody that I train will have a problem going into a competition and winning. Mm -hmm. And if they were in a fight, being able to use it. 
when I see the biggest problem with regards to the machine operating cleanly and having a, a, a possible problem where I'd have to remove a student from a class, it would be because either they're constantly going against these directives that we set out before they signed up saying, these are the rules. Are you cool with that? They mm -hmm. sign up. Awesome. We've gone into an agreement, a contractual agreement that this is what we're both going to do. And if you keep breaking that, cool, we're going to have to terminate your membership because it's not a good fit. Mm -hmm. Or if I think for a moment that this person can't turn it off and they're going to use this outside to some other end, mm -hmm. I don't want to build better predators, mm -hmm. right? So if someone starts initially coming up to me, I'm not going to get a good read right away first day. It's going to take me a few times, right? So you see how they are in the class and you're learning from their behavior, what they like to do, who do they roll with? Mm -hmm. Are they always going for the smaller person? Are they always going for the lesser ranked people? Are they really a mat bully? Mm -hmm. And if they are, it's not a good fit. All right, hasta la pasta, mm -hmm. see you later, right? And I have no problem doing that mm -hmm. because no one person's tuition is more valuable to me than the total amount of people That's training. Compromise. And I can't allow even one student to feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. We are in a we are in a niche sport that is made to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Like when you have somebody else's sweat on your skin, <laughs> it's not a normal feeling to be okay with it. Yeah. And we have to build ourselves up to dealing with claustrophobia discomfort, joint aches. Everyone who has ever trained has taken a shower and felt a sting of some kind of burn on their skin that opened up. Mm -hmm. And a normal human being would like, screw that. Mm -hmm. But we somehow get past it, right? So in order for you to make somebody else uncomfortable in that setting means you did something egregious. And mm -hmm. those, are, those are people that I wouldn't keep as well. Because yeah. once again, the, the social benefits are some of the greatest intangibles to take away. Mm -hmm. You're learning to respect other people. You're learning how to be a better person in spite of having this very deadly art that you're learning. Mm -hmm. You're training to be, uh, you're, you're training to be a walking instrument of pain. Mm -hmm. And yet you still go grocery shopping and you don't throttle the little kid because he's <laughs> screaming for ice cream. Yes. Right. It's like, you know when to use it mm -hmm. and you should. And for us, we have to filter the bad people out because in recent years we've seen a lot of people coming out in the news having um, sexual assault on their record and being black belts in jujitsu. And it's mm -hmm. like, how do these happen? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, you have a case of a guy who um, tried to abduct his wife and mm -hmm. kidnap her for whatever ends. And it's like, man, wish that didn't happen. Turns mm -hmm. out the guy's a black belt. Oh, you mean just because you're a black belt doesn't mean you're a good person. Listen, bad people exist in all walks of life. Mm -hmm. And there's that 1% rule. Like 1% of all people are just going to be terrible, terrible human beings, right? But our goal is to filter them out, hopefully sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. I would say, find me a red belt in jujitsu who's a scumbag, mm -hmm. right? Black belt to us is not the end of the road. And so just because you found a black belt to be a terrible human being doesn't really mean too much, mm -hmm. but it does mean that they got through long, longer than they should have. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of hours spent with somebody to not know that they're a scumbag. Mm -hmm. So that it is. is a problem, but it, it can still happen. And mm -hmm. it does. I just feel like in recent years with the growth of social media and the amount of presence that we have in each other's lives via the internet, 
we're allowed a little bit more access into who is really doing what. Mm -hmm. Like, could Jeffrey Dahmer exist in this day and age? I think he could, mm -hmm. but it's a little bit harder to get away with oh, yeah. it as long. Yeah. Right? So now we're finding out these people much quicker. And if anything, that fear will be a deterrent. Mm -hmm. But we as gatekeepers for the art have to also just be vigilant and look for those key characteristics of what makes a predator. <laughs> and my goal is to actually just be uh, a better watchdog. Mm -hmm. That way I don't have to be a better vigilante later. Mm -hmm. Yes. I like that. Yeah. And it's, that's a fascinating thing when you have that social component, because I guess there's two things. Um, one would be with that social component, you're doing more than just teaching technique. However, it's not the point because when it does become the point, then it becomes culty or it can become weird when it's, you know what I mean? When we're trying to teach everyone how, how to be able to love and respect each other, like if that is like the number one thing. And then technique you know what i mean there's a point where yeah. it becomes a shoe but it's even with this podcast like if i'm here and doing this podcast and i'm doing it because your life i'm assuming all your everyone listening's life sucks and i know a better way of living life so i'm going to tell you it and that's like that is horrible in the sense because it's so ignorant right yeah and and also you miss the point because you haven't learned anything if you've if you've come to that conclusion right um just like you were mentioning about with Joe Rogan, like he, un he understands he's, he's, he has the humility to be able to understand he's just really good at jokes. He's not just a, you know, a good person. He's not a good person in every aspect. He's not a God, so to speak. Yeah. Right. He's just a person. Yeah. He's just Oprah for dudes. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> he would laugh at that too, because yeah. you know, so many people have made that joke by now, oh, but yeah. it's like, and I think that's also why he's so appealing to us because mm -hmm. he is that quintessential approachable dude who understands he's a dude mm -hmm. and he's not bigger than himself. Yeah. Um, when I, when I hear of people that are like, you must call me professor. And I'm like, dude, you can call me Dave. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And first <laughs> off, that's not how it runs in the association that I'm a part of mm -hmm. Pedro Sauer association. But even still, if I got to the rank of third degree black belt, which for me is still six years away, mm -hmm. I don't know if I would ever request that. I feel yeah. like if you happen to introduce me on the show as Professor David Porter mm -hmm. and I was a third degree black belt under Pedro, I wouldn't be like, whoa, that's not correct. Yeah. <laughs> what I would probably say instead is, thank you. You can call me Dave. Mm -hmm. Right. And if we were in a class and I were teaching it and someone's like, coach, I wouldn't get mad at them. Mm -hmm. Like, whatever whatever title or honorific you want to bestow on somebody, when you decide to do that, that's on you, mm -hmm. right? But I'm not going to force anybody to do that for me. Mm -hmm. And like for Pedro, he, he used to call Elio professor. Mm -hmm. Elio was never called master or grandmaster by Pedro. But when Pedro talks about him to others, mm -hmm. he talks about grandmaster Elio Gracie. Ah. And then when I am introducing Pedro to an audience, like a seminar or a class, like mm -hmm. let's say I did a warm up in the Herndon location. Mm -hmm. After that, I would you know tell everyone from the warm ups, okay, fix your geese. Let's pay respects to Master Sour. Mm -hmm. That's the words I would use when I go up to him, and if I'm with somebody, and it's just one on one, I'm like, Professor, we have a quick question about this. Mm. He still prefers the term Professor wow. because to him. That was really cool. Like he called Elio that. Hmm. So now that people call him that, it's like awesome, mm -hmm. right? But even when he first picked up that title, he didn't like it. Mm -hmm. Now it's grown on him. 
but he hates when people call him Master Sour, except when they're introducing him oh, to an I audience, see. right? Yeah. So, like when I call him or talk to him, it's just you know he's Pedro, mm -hmm. he's a dude. Yeah, he's just a dude who's got forty six years of jujitsu. Yeah, <laughs> and also drives Porsches like a maniac. Oh, yeah, Ooh, Porsche fun though. Ooh. Yeah, you know what he does for fun on the side? Hmm. He cleans and puts together Porsche parts. What for fun? Whoa! He goes to the Porsche dealership. They know him. They wave him in. He goes to the back, and it's like a surgeon's office. Like, everything is immaculate. He washes his hands in soap, and he scrubs them. He doesn't touch a single part that has grease. And he just takes these pristine things and puts them together. Wow. And then he, after a few hours, he goes home. Wow. And think about that. Like, mentally, what kind of a person does that for fun? Yeah. A mechanically-minded person is also going to be great at jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I didn't think of that. That That is very true. Just a, a technical person. But this is why my key phrase that I say time and time again mm -hmm. is that jujitsu is ever changing, but the human body is finite. Mm. We as people are developing new ways in which we use our craft. Mm -hmm. But when you're attacking the human body, it's going to really come down to only a few things. Mm -hmm. And as long as you stop trying to beat mechanics, you'll beat the person. Uh, so like when I'm in someone's knee shield half guard mm -hmm. and people are like, oh, how do you beat the knee shield? It's like, well, how do you beat the knee? How do you beat the hip? The, this is still a human, right? Mm -hmm. So how they're employing their tools might be the thing you're focusing on. But realistically, mm -hmm. it just comes down into the mechanics of the person. Mm -hmm. And so once you figure out like, oh, the hip is a ball and socket joint, the knee is a hinge joint. So now if I compress the shin and rotate my body, that thing is going to bounce off of me like a basketball. Mm. And you're like, how'd you beat that so easy? It's like, <laughs> it's a human. Yeah. It's a human. And plus, not, not because I fought in the cage and in the ring and not because I was in combat, but it's only grappling. Mm -hmm. Like, why are you afraid? Mm -hmm. Like, try a move. Mm -hmm. Some people get like, especially with me, if they see the rank, Man, this is another reason why, like, I love visiting Academy's Nogi mm -hmm. because if it's a Nogi program, it's almost like a, I will respect you when I see you move mm -hmm. versus, oh, I'm going to respect this rank. Oh, it's like, yeah. whatever. Rank is rank. Is rank. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. it's, we, it's we, all, we, we all know somebody who got it too soon and yeah. we all know somebody who should get it earlier. Mm -hmm. And that's a hell of a lesson to learn in the middle of a grapple because you judged. Yeah. I, I'd much rather you don't judge me by that, but by my movement. Mm -hmm. And so, anyway. And I'd also, too, would say that that's um, being present-minded, right? To yeah. where it's like, instead of you have all this expectation going into yeah. something, whether you see someone's rank or whether it's, you know, you're watching these videos, this guy's a monster, and you're like, uh, but if you just, you're there. Yeah. See how this but, goes. But don't, don't be that person that tells me you're like, oh, well, I'm a, you know, I'm a four-stripe I don't know, blue belt. I'm a four stripe blue belt. It's like, cool. Some people give stripes for attendance. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like some people, they could mean totally different things. When I see a blue belt, what I should see is someone who has an understanding of how to move their own body. Mm -hmm. When I see a purple belt, I see someone who should be able to move their own body and move another person's body against their will. Mm -hmm. When I see a brown belt, the brown belt not only knows how to move their body, but they're doing less of moving of their body and more of moving their opponent's body. Mm. And when I see a black belt, they shouldn't be moving much. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I, I, I'm going to move when I submit you. <laughs> right? I don't have to do anything extra. 
I have just toned it down to the point where I'm going to only do the movements that are necessary for the finish. And so when people are grappling with me and they're like, why aren't you moving? I'm like, I don't have to. (laughs) If we just want to sit here and stare at each other for five minutes, I'll do that. Mm -hmm. But if you let me reach in and grab you and then you get choked within the next two seconds, that's on you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But man, it, it can be, it can be very simple. Yeah. But like my instructor would tell me all the time, jujitsu is simple, not easy. Mm, Yeah. Boil it down. It really is just simple stuff. Mm -hmm. But the time it takes to do it, that's what kills us. Mm -hmm. Right. So when people burn out or they quit, we talk about the blue belt itis. Mm -hmm. When people get a blue belt and stop, it, it really is just because they realize that was the easiest accomplishment they'll ever get. Mm-hmm it only gets harder after that. Hmm. And that's where they burn out. And that's where they go, ah, this is too hard. Mm-hmm. It's the time. Yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah. listen, I just want to say this because I'm going to have to kick off. Yeah, but man, I, too. I love the ability to share my mindset and the experiences that I've generated through the years of doing this. Mm-hmm. And if there's any last bit of advice I would give to people, it's not just the cross train and take seminars and do that stuff. But if, an, if a class is, and I'm going to use simple math, but mm-hmm. if a class is one hour long and the, the procedures for starting a class into the warmups takes 10 to 15 minutes and then the instruction on the mechanic takes five to 10 more minutes, you drilling it takes 10 to 15 minutes and then you're rolling the rest of class, boil it down into how much of that time was one-on-one with the instructor. Mm. You might have raised your hand one time in that class, if ever. Mm-hmm. And in that time, the instructor might have come over to you and talked to you for one to two minutes maximum mm-hmm. in that class. That's an hour long. So now two goes into 60. So now it's one to 30, right? Mm-hmm. So you got one minute for every 30 minutes of class time. If you take a private lesson with an instructor, that's an hour long private lesson. It's pretty much equal to 30 classes. Mm. So if you want to have an exponential growth in your game outside of just being consistent, showing up two to three times a week without taking breaks and drilling the move and being ready and just going like that is absolutely how you will get better. But if you want to have that that injection of NOS into your engine, Mm -hmm. take a private lesson you will get 30 classes worth of information because it's 60 pure minutes of one-on-one versus a class that could be the best class you ever took in your life. Mm -hmm. But take the best class you ever took in your life and compare it to arguably what I consider an average private lesson, that average private lesson will be better. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have the resources for a private lesson, find out ways of jumping in on private lessons. Mm -hmm. There's usually someone who's looking for a buddy that can split on cost. Or you find ways of, uh, of bartering. Mm-hmm. Um, we have got Cody at our gym, who's a masseuse. And trust me, I like getting adjusted. <laughs> I like chiropractors. I have friends that are um, uh, into kinesthetics and mm-hmm. you know stuff like that. Man, it's all great. I'll do trades. So if you're looking for another way of growth, do that basic gorilla math and mm-hmm. be like, man, that makes sense. Maybe if I'm paying, you know, let's say 100 or 150 or 200 bucks a month for a jujitsu uh, as a tuition, mm-hmm. how much more sense does it make to say if I make two classes a week or three classes a week, that's either eight classes a month or 12 classes a month? Mm-hmm. That is not a lot. Mm-hmm. But 
one private lesson for less than the cost of your tuition is like 30 classes. Mm. So now you just got months of jujitsu training in one hour, mm. not training, but yeah. months of jujitsu instruction in one hour. Usually when I give somebody a private lesson, they work that material for half a year to a year mm -hmm. and it's incredible. So, um, if you're listening, make sure you're kind, compassionate, but have a plan to tap out everybody. Be merciless on the tap. Just kidding. <laughs> um, be consistent by coming to class. Even if you can only make once a week, don't take time off. Mm -hmm. Just keep on your path of however much you can make it, but be consistent with it. When you're there, have a plan. Don't just come in and... I'm going to talk about the movie I saw last night, or I'm going to talk about this. I'm mm -hmm. going to talk about that. Just be present and, and focus. Like your plan is you wanted to learn. And then if you want to enhance that, definitely cross train, go to other gyms. If your gym, your academy doesn't allow you to cross train, you need a new gym or academy. Mm -hmm. Nobody has the rights to you as a human being and you have no ownership. They have no ownership of where you decide to spend your off time when you are not there. Mm -hmm. Right. It is a private institution, but just like any private institutions, they're not going to stop you from getting a tutor. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And on that front, get a tutor, <laughs> get somebody who can give you private instruction. If you do one private lesson a year, it's still better than never doing a private lesson that year. Mm -hmm. If you could do one a month and you have the means to do it, you are going to see incredible growth. Mm -hmm. And, uh, as always, jujitsu is simple, not easy. The human body is finite. <laughs> Sweet. Thank you so much, Dave. I appreciate uh, it. Thanks. Will. I appreciate you having me on. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you want to see more of David's grappling rounds, you could find him at Dave Dars Porter or Dave Porter on YouTube um, and on Instagram at Dave Dars. I'll be sure to leave those links in the show notes. You can also check out some classes by Jeff Shaw and Dave Dars at Bellingham BJJ. I'll leave the show notes to their website and their Instagram. Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you guys would like to check out more of Dave Darce's grappling rounds, you could find him on YouTube as Dave Darce Porter. I'll be sure to leave the links to his YouTube and his Instagram, Dave Darce, in the show notes. You can also check out Dave Darce and Jeff Shaw teaching classes at Bellingham BJJ. I'll throw the link to their website in the show notes as well. If you'd like to support the show, head over to Becoming Human Podcast and drop us a fucking line. By the way, from the intro, I found out you don't have to worry about um, viruses, but you have to worry about malware. Man, it wasn't as bad as it used to be. That shit was crazy. Man, so much has changed. I got a son. He, he's seven, so... Like raising him throughout this, it's it's a trip. It makes me feel like outdated. Not outdated, just I realize how much I've had to adapt, how much we've all had to adapt over the years. And much like how much we've had to adapt in, you know, jujitsu training or learning any skill, it's easy to forget how far you've come in that amount of time. Till next time, y'all. Enjoy your week. Thank you for listening. I love y'all.
pleasure. Yo, my life is like a video game. My main thing when I'm in the zone. One player, one life in the mark. Come with the dog. Go ninja, go. No fucking it down. I'm cutting down any one of my parts. Trying to fuck up my game with razor sharp political throw stars. Get on my flow, sword horse. Ah, wow, out of control. Ninja, scoop the fuck the roof. Ah, rough rounds, a tough dance, let's go, of course. Scrawl, till I hit triple seven at the ATM, straight family feast. When you're living on the razor edge, stay sharp, sharp, rolling with the SOS. Hard energy, you never seen Zeph so fresh. Ah, uh, when we mark, check hard, death flows flex. Yo, we off the must, stuck not fucking the press. We not like the rest, my style is UFO. Totally unknown, you can't fuck with my new Zeph flow. I'm hard to miss, you're going to this, you're going to that, you're fucking new said so. I do it a lot, too hot to handle, too cold to hold, you can't fuck with the chosen one. I, 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 I want to knock your arm and lose said I wouldn't make it. They said I was a loser. They said I was a no one. They said I was a fucking psycho. But look at me now, all up in the interweb. Worldwide, 2009, Futurista, enter the ninja. Yo, Landy Fusser, DJ Hot Yak, you fucking aren't good. It's my nanny. I'm a ninja! Yo, I'm a ninja! Yo, I'm a ninja! 